If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. We made this. Hello everyone and welcome back to the X-Cast. The truth is in here. I'm your host Tony Black and this is it. We've reached the end, or have we? We've certainly reached the end of season four. Have we reached the end for Fox Mulder in the uh, season four finale, Gethsemane? Well, to help me answer that question is the uh, the one and only, the only person I can have back for finales. It's sort of an unwritten contractual rule now, but I'm sort of making it stick. I have a very, very good agent. <laughs> yes, Darren Mooney certainly does. Hello. Great to be back, Darren. Uh, always great to be back. I don't actually have a good agent. He hasn't called me in months. <laughs> Has he been um, abducted by aliens or like a sinister government conspiracy to possibly... Yeah. conceal the reality behind aliens. No, what, what actually happened is that he was abducted by aliens, but there was a government conspiracy to cover <laughs> up the belief in aliens to make me think that he hadn't been, but he might have been. Just go to a new agency, definitely. That that, that will save you a lot of time. And the, and the conspiracy, which obviously plays a big part in the episode we're going to talk about, can Gethsemane, the, uh, the season four finale of The X-Files, which uh, first aired... On May the eighteenth, nineteen ninety-seven, was written by Chris Carter and directed by R. W. Goodwin, and obviously sees Mulder getting close to the ultimate proof—an extraterrestrial biological entity that has been found in the Yukon Mountain Territory, apparently—and as he goes off on a quest to find what could be the salvation, the proof of everything in the X Files, Scully is wrestling with her own personal faith on the eve of her cancer diagnosis reaching critical and she begins to uncover the most sinister truth behind everything that Mulder has investigated, a truth he could never have foreseen. So Gethsemane, which is, we're we're almost close to the halfway point of the X-Files and this is quite an important episode, not just as a season finale, but as a and a, a part of the mythology as a whole. What would you let 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 let's let's see what you think of this, Darren, generally, and what would you give it out of ten? Okay, well, two things very quickly, just there, and what you're talking about. I love the fact that you were like an alien was discovered in the Yukon Mountains, apparently, <laughs> as if to say, like the disputable part of it is that it was the Yukon Mountains. Are you sure <laughs> it wasn't found in Montreal? Because I mean, that will throw the whole thing into debt. Um, 
But yeah, and it, I love the fact that you're so optimistic that you believe that this is halfway through, Tony. I can almost <laughs> sense the excitement there. It's like, wait until, you know, <laughs> 10 years from now when Carter announces that actually he's got another series greenlit and it's somehow managed to convince Gillian Anderson to come back. And it's like, no, 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 we're not even halfway there I yet. Thought, I thought you were about um, to I say, did... <laughs> wait until 10 years when you're still doing this podcast, Tony. Oh no, that's 20. That's going to oh, be yeah, 20. Yeah, 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 that's true. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, to, to get back to your point there, just about Gethsemane, I'm going to open high on this. I'm going to say a nine. Um, I absolutely adore this episode. It's not one of the best episodes of the season, uh, but that's a testament to the season as a whole being spectacular. But it's, it is, I think you described it as an important episode, and it is an important episode. It's one that's often overlooked, I think, in discussions of the mythology, and I think there are lots of you know reasons for that in terms of plot. And, and again, this is the thing where we talk about the X-Files, and we talk generally, and it's like, the X-Files you know, doesn't, always hold together in terms of like ideas of long-term plotting and like a b c d e f g following you know kind of one plot point to another to another and if you are a fan who's very like interested in the mythology as a linear progression that moves from you know through that cycle from beginning to end gethsemane you know is an easy episode to overlook because it you know is arguably something of a dead end you know even when it aired it was somewhat unconvincing in terms of like what it looks like it's trying to do uh, which we'll probably talk about in a moment but thematically, it is hugely important. And more than that, it's an illustration of... And again, this is me going off on one, I apologize. But for me, it's it's an illustration of how clever The X-Files was at doing what it was doing. It's The X-Files taking the skepticism and the world weariness and this kind of like critical thinking that the show had, you know, adopted towards, you know, the world around itself, this sort of like Oliver Stone-esque paranoia and questioning of authority, realizing that, you know, at this point in its run, it was one of the biggest shows on television. I mean, earlier in the season with Leonard Betts, it accomplished its highest ratings ever. And turning that skepticism and paranoia back on itself in a way that is incredibly introspective and incredibly mature and incredibly, you know, I think necessary at the time, but something that I think has aged absolutely incredibly well in the 20-odd years since it aired. So yeah, I absolutely adore this episode. When I was younger, I remember feeling like there were things missing from this. It wasn't kind of a mythology episode that I was used to. You know, yeah. I mean, it didn't have The Smoking Man, didn't have Crycheck, didn't have Skinner. Didn't have Skinner. Didn't have Skinner, yeah. I mean, that, you know, that is quite startling. Of all, the, all of them, you know, there's no... There are no bar you know, Scully's mother. There are no other characters from the wider ensemble in this episode. And for a season finale... <coughs> Scott Blevins. <coughs> <laughs> Sorry. How could I forget? The, what a presence. The what a man. <laughs> the recurring star that is Technically recurring. Technically recurring. Pulled him out of mothballs. But I... They went down. I like the idea that when they were hiring the actor, they had to send the casting agent into the mountains in a parachute <laughs> to hunt him down and bring him back. <laughs> oh, he's skipping ahead there. That's that's sorry, that's sorry, sorry. five territory, Darren. Uh, but yeah, it it you know it's got none of those elements. It's got none of the the traditional mythology elements that we're used to, and we've been used to now for two seasons, over two seasons. And I felt at the time, ah, oh, this doesn't feel like what I what I wanted. But as I, with with age and with distance. I really do think this is a one of the best season finales of the show, and I think it's one of the strongest mythology episodes of the show. As much as I really like Redux and Redux 2, 
I don't think they're necessarily as strong as this because I think what Gethsemane manages to do, I think I think I would go for like an eight point five or even a nine for this myself. Actually, I definitely would, and I think it manages to sort of contextualise the key overarching points about the X Files in a way the show itself in a way that not every mythology episode gets to do in the sense that it feels like it's not just touching on all the building conspiracy ideas or the you know uh, myth arc ideas like scully's cancer and clones and colonization yeah all all of these different things but it it goes back to the very core idea that that's that the show always gets away from in the end which is that scully was originally sent down there to debunk his work you know she was meant to go in and for the FBI and say he's a raving loony, shut him down. And much as, you know, this episode likes, he's trying in some respects to get you to believe that Scully may finally have given up on him and and turned around on, on, and gone back to that. Not that I think that's necessarily convincing. I really like the fact that Chris Carter goes back to that core idea and uses it as a way to, if not put a full stop on what Mulder has been investigating, but really upend it, pull the rug out from under you, and try and steer everything off into a into a really strange, in its own way, new direction. And I think it's not; it does exactly what you don't expect at the end of season four. I think, and I, and I really like that about it. Yeah, and I think that one of the things that it does that's very clever and it's kind of interesting because again you mentioned watching it when you're younger and coming back to it and kind of like aging into it almost to a certain extent and i remember feeling the same way about it when i was a kid i was like there's no way and again we're assuming that you've watched the episode by the time we talk about this there's no way that Mulder's dead there's no yeah. way that Scully's betraying Mulder. <laughs> There's no way that, you know, after watching Brian fecking Thompson morph into various shapes and forms <laughs> in Colony and Endgame, that this is all just an elaborate, yeah. like, DOD paperwork exercise. Gee, I'm really excited about that season five. Um, but no, it, like... As a teenager, I was watching it, and I always thought that was a weakness of the episode. I always thought that was a flaw in the episode, that, you know, the X-Files had gone too far for Mm. Carter to do what I thought he was trying to do here, which is to turn it round and to say, actually, no, 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 all that alien stuff is just nonsense. What's really happening is that it's a government conspiracy, and it's just they want to trick you into believing, even though we've had scenes of, like, villains talking amongst themselves and discussing these things, you know, that can't possibly have been for anybody's benefit but for the camera. Um, and, you know, as a teenager, I was very snarky and I was like, and again, this is the teenager who watches The Sixth Sense is like, yeah, but what about that scene where Bruce Willis is sitting down and it looks like he's talking to Tony Collette, um, which is just really sort of like nerdy, kind of, you know, attentive, like detail oriented, missing the point sort of focus of the, the scene. Uh, but what I think works really well about Gethsemane, and I think that as I've aged into it and kind of like appreciate it more and more every time I watch it, is the fact that the show knows this it knows that you as a viewer are television literate like it understands Mm. that you know how television works and it knows that it's not pulling a fast one on you because it doesn't try to pull a fast one on you like the cliffhanger is scully saying that Mulder's dead right but the opening shot of the episode is scully going to what is clearly Mulder's apartment staring at a body and saying yes it's him like there's 
it, that's not a twist at the end of the episode that Mulder may have killed himself. The entire episode is building to that and has told you ahead of time that, you know, Scully's going to reveal that Mulder has killed himself. In the same way that, like, watching, uh, you know, Chris Gow talk about how aliens are just an elaborate fiction created by the government, the show knows and knows that you know. That yeah. it's and again, this is yeah. all very postmodern, sort of fourth wall breaky. But it knows that you, as a television viewer, know that that's not going to last, and that's not actually a direction the show is going to go. And it just kind of goes with it anyway, because that's an interesting way to ask questions. I mean, there's a wonderful uh, Wall Street again. The, the press coverage of this got to give an example. Like, this is this was the point at which the X Files was one of the biggest shows on television, and you started seeing things like the New Yorker ran a cartoon. Uh, which like spoofed this, where you had a guy sitting on a couch and a psychiatrist saying, I think a short period of mourning is, is entirely appropriate as long as you remember that Fox Mulder is a fictional character, uh, <laughs> which is delightful. But you had even things like the Wall Street Journal um, doing like really sort of playful, like discussing going out into fandom and asking questions, you know, which is again, relatively unheard of in the context of 1997 at the time. Mm. And like you have, like if you look at the comments in the Wall Street Journal from fans, it's very clear that the wool was not pulled over many people's eyes. Because they're like, you know, there's a feature film coming next summer. Yeah. Do you really think that Fox Mulder is dead? And do you really think that Scully has betrayed him and sort of thrown him under the bus? And a lot of the, you know, there's a couple of comments where like, well, maybe the feature film is like a prequel. And you have like (laughs) Fox uh, having a spokesperson issue a statement that's like, you know, if this was just a giant ruse to throw you off this cliffhanger, that would be the greatest conspiracy in the history of mankind. Wink, wink. But a lot of the audience members are like, no, transparently, this is a cliffhanger the show is setting up. And it knows that we know that it's going to have to write around it. And as I've gotten older, I've kind of appreciated that in a kind of a really twisty postmodern sort of way. It's a cliffhanger that knows it's a cliffhanger and knows that you know how cliffhangers work well enough that the fact that it transparently can't be true isn't an issue with it and is in fact a strength I would argue. What's interesting is when you compare this to I'd say a modern similar example would be and Game of Thrones spoilers ahead so just beware people but the end of season five of Game of Thrones where Jon Snow dies inverted commas now that obviously then engendered a year-long amount of speculation as to whether or not he was actually dead because the book series hasn't gone beyond Jon Snow's death. So, you know, in <laughs> but, and that was at the point then season six of Game of Thrones, it was all new, inverted commas, material. So, it, but it was one of those things where Jon Snow is such a big character and such an important character to the to what you understand the the story of Game of Thrones to be, you know, the 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 a lot of the 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 archetypes and all this kind of thing that for him to die at that point just didn't feel right as a viewer. It didn't feel right. But I think the difference with that is that I think that show was trying to convince you he was dead. Oh yeah. It had Kit Harrington doing interviews talking about how he was done with the show. Exactly. I think it even had him on set in various other locations as if to suggest he was taking work outside. Yeah. It had like, I think even leaked scripts and stuff like that. It was very much playing a game where it wanted fans to believe that like, you know, Kit Harrington was not coming back. But but nobody did. Nobody did yeah. for a minute. Like you know. So then at the end of the of the first episode of season six of Game of Thrones, when he gasps a breath, 
you're like, yeah, knew that was going to happen. You, I knew, I knew it was going to. You know, even even if you hadn't seen the behind the scenes footage of him filming the Battle of the Bastards, which was going to be later on in that season, you know, which was leaked everywhere, you know, and I, I know that's very different from the age of the X Files, where you didn't have the internet in the same way and all this kind of thing. But the, but Gethsemane's different, and what they do with Mulder is different because he's not be he's not dead for the shock value of <gasps> what. It's more about the the the, the character arc. That Mulder goes through. You you are left at the end of that episode genuinely questioning whether or not Mulder would kill himself because of this earth-shattering possibility that everything he's believed is wrong. And that's that's the core. That's every day we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At US Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The point, and whether or not Redux obviously has to write out of that corner, you know, and has to then have him, oh, of course he's alive, you know, and and it does it in a really sort of, mm, very sort of... <laughs> plotty knotty tv way you know conveniently but that doesn't matter it, it it works as a character arc i think really well because he is the kind of psychologically Mulder is exactly the kind of person i think who could be pushed to a certain breaking point where if he lost faith and this episode is all about faith but if he lost faith then would he actually do that would he actually end his life and give up give up the, the quest and that's the question at the heart of Gethsemane well, I mean I, th- I think there's even more to it than that I mean the episode is called Gethsemane which is again a reference to kind of Christian theology it's you know the moment of doubt that Jesus mm. had before he was crucified and you know again you spoil Game of Thrones excuse me while I spoil the Bible uh, but <laughs> Jesus's moment of doubt before he died ended in a resurrection and it's very what? clear that the show is going that yeah I know um, 2000 really? years old uh, yeah uh, hashtag spoilers spoiler is, that alert, season, um, is that season 10 of like that's, the Bible is, the, is that next season <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I may have gotten a little bit ahead of myself there. Um, I quite like. What was it? There was there was a movie. I can't even remember what it's called with Joseph Fiennes and that Tom Felton. I think it's called Resurrection. And I remember just like I haven't seen it, but I want to see it because it's like basically a forensic thriller in biblical times where this guy is sent to Jerusalem to like solve the mystery of what happened to Jesus's body and I'm kind of like I am all in on a Joseph Fine CSI Jesus movie I was gonna say it sounds like CSI Jerusalem yeah yeah brilliant (laughs) tell me you're not on board with that um but and I, I think actually what you're getting at something there when you talk about like Mulder and the way that he is a character you can push in in that direction I think that like Again, and this is the thing where Darren's going to be all artsy fartsy and pretentious, and you know, talk a load of nonsense. And you know, you can you can point out that a lot of the plot mechanics here are um, inelegant, 
and I would concede that they probably are. And mm-hmm. I think that they get worse as, as the kind of trilogy goes on. I like the Redux trilogy as a whole a lot, but it is not the most watertight plotting the show has no. ever had. I no. think anybody will, will concede. Yeah. But thematically, what you have is you have Mulder dying in an existential sense, in like a kind of a, you know, this sort of abstract philosophical sense where you have this idea of Mulder embodying a certain set of beliefs and ideals that are arguably woven into the fabric of the X-Files, the show. And what Gethsemane does, and it's kind of amazing that a show is doing this at the height of its own popularity. And we'll probably talk about this a bit later on as well. But what the show is doing is it's unraveling that string to a certain extent. It's kind of deconstructing the X-Files. And I mean, the show kind of did this a little bit when we talked back about Anasazi, where you had like Chris Carter literally stepping into Scully and going, why haven't you done the job that I gave you to do? Um, You know, but this takes it much, much, much further and actually has that on spool. Because with with, um, Anasazi... Like, Mulder was dying to be reborn in a very literal sort of Christ-like manner. The show, you know, after two seasons, Carter had figured out the version of the show that he wanted to make. And he was like, okay, kill it and bring it back in the way that we get the third season, which I would argue is the show's best season, but which is a lot more confident, a lot more assured, and a lot more kind of aware of what The X-Files is. What you have with the fourth and fifth seasons is you have something that is a bit less kind of concrete and a bit less assured and it's a bit more kind of fungible because a lot of the stuff that was happening around in the background you know stuff like carter wanting to wrap up the show after five seasons 100 episodes and move on to feature films or other tv shows and fox being like no 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 don't do that what we want is we want a feature film and a new season of the show while it's on the air people like Duchovny being like well i'm not sure i want to stick around a lot maybe we could move the show to you know los angeles and carter being like i don't know if that's going to work maybe i'll have to get another lead in and stuff like that and even things like carter's talked in the av club about being in a situation where he's like telling fox that he might want to end the show after 100 episodes and fox are like actually if you do that we'll just continue producing it we'll just get somebody else to write it and carter being like well i promised david Duchovny and Gillian anderson that i would stay as long as they did so i feel obligated to stay as well and so you have all this sort of tension bubbling through there in the fourth and fifth seasons where it's like carter seems and again I don't know, I haven't interviewed Carter, and I don't want to seem like I'm inferring too much into, like, Carter's psychology or doing pop psychology on him or stuff like that. But if you look at the show in the fourth and fifth season, there's a real sense of, like, what what is the X-Files now? Is it what I wanted it to be? And has it become something that has literally escaped my control? And again, if you look at the fifth season, postmodern Prometheus is very much that idea literalized. It's like Carter has created a monster. That monster is some weird hybrid of like pop culture, Cher, Frankenstein, James Whale, all thrown into a blender and it's kind of magical. Uh, but it's not at all what he intended. And it's like this weird monstrous child, but you kind of love it anyway. But like with Gethsemane, you have a much more serious rumination on that where you have Carter... And again, you have the show asking questions about, like, why is the X-Files about aliens? Or why is the show so preoccupied with these big abstract science fiction concepts like colonization when, you know, the real things that are happening in the world are, like, horrible abuses of trust that the show is also dealing with, but it's coating them in this kind of, like, fantasy or sci-fi trapping. And is that ultimately more harmful than good? Is that causing harm? Are people reading the show the wrong way? Has, like, what Carter wanted to communicate to the X-Files been lost as a result? And, like, is it a fair criticism of the show to attack it on those grounds? And 
all of that is kind of woven into to Gethsemane from like from mm. literally the opening shot with Carl Sagan and stuff like that, where you have this discussion, Isaac Asimov, you have this discussion of like science fiction and this discussion of like the belief in alien life and why the belief in alien life is important. And you have the show asking like why Carter has chosen to tell a story that is very Oliver Stone-esque, very like JFK or very like Nixon or, you know, Mm. any number of other examples. Why he's chosen to tell that story, but populate it with like UFOs and and little green men and and monsters like that. And the result is, I think, incredibly introspective, incredibly brave for a show that was, you know, a pop cultural phenomenon at that moment in time. And, And very, yeah, very unlike anything the show had done to that point and a rather different from what it would do afterwards as well i think yeah absolutely and i think that's why it really does stand the test of time as an episode so before we talk about it in a bit more detail let's let's do the classic imdb okay so we've given our ratings where do you what would you give this well well where do, where do you think this lands darren on the, on the imdb um scale what what would you say what would your guess be Okay, so I'm going to weigh this up, like, mathematically. Typically, mythology episodes get a bump, right? So I'd be thinking somewhere around nine, right? But this is a mythology episode that doesn't actually feature any mythology elements, as you've noted. And the IMDb tends to favor kind of more conservative uh, approaches to mythology and stuff like that. So it tends to, and understandably, I like Skinner a lot, too. I like Smoking Man a lot, too. And, you know, I like, you know, things that move the story forward and they have a kind of priority. So I think it'll go a bit lower. I'm going to go with around an 86 not a bad guess actually it ends up with an 8.8 um, on the IMDB scale yeah so pretty good pretty good guess there that means it's one it's one of the highest rated episodes of the season it's only beaten by yeah it's only beaten by home musings of a cigarette smoking man which I think tops tops the season on IMDB I think that's the highest rated episode of season 4 small potatoes beats it uh, and I think that's it. I think everything else yeah. is Fourth yeah. Highest. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm shocked that Paper Hearts doesn't even get into the nines. You know, there's um, there's some real surprises. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, well, <laughs> um, I mean, the fourth season is very much a roller coaster, so it makes yeah. sense that the IMDb's rating of the fourth season would be a bit of a roller coaster as well. Yeah. Well, it certainly fits. Twists and turns. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. So it's out of 2,420 ratings, 8.8. So Hmm, interesting. It's highly ranked, so, you know, highly rated. So, and we rate it, so let's talk about Gethsemane in greater detail. Um, so, as you say, it begins uh, with us, with this with this conundrum in media res scene of Scully going to Mulder's apartment and seeing what could be his dead body, but we don't actually see it as Mulder. I really like, I have to say, I really like the way this episode is directed in general. I think the way, you know, Goodwin, who is one of the unsung, we've said this before on the X-Cast, but he's kind of one of the unsung heroes, really, directorial-wise of the show. You know, he's up there with the best. He's up there with Manners, Bowman, you know, David Nutter. He's, he is great, you know, and he often comes in and does these kind of episodes. I think he does a couple of finales. Few finales, and and he, I really like the lighting in this scene. The this sort of orange hue, you know, this sort of it's I don't it's hard to say whether it's twilight or it's like the the break of dawn. It's just got this real sort of 
almost unearthly glow to it, I think, which I really, really appreciate from a cinematography point of view. It just, it, Mulder's apartment just looks, feels different at this, in this moment. I don't know if you feel that. I certainly do. Oh no, like Goodwin's, Goodwin's work here is outstanding and it is very much, it's very unnatural, but it's, it's meant to feel unnatural. It's meant to feel mm. uncanny and stuff like that. I mean, there are a couple of other absolutely beautiful shots throughout the episode in keeping, and again, Goodwin understands the episode, I think, thematically as well, which is very important when you're a director. You understand what the writer is trying to get across, but not just literally in terms of dialogue, but also in terms of intent. So you have, like, these wonderful shots throughout the episode of, like, God's eye view of things. Um, so you have these positions where it's like The Sims. The camera is just literally placed up on a ceiling, staring right down at the characters, watching them move almost like kind of ants through an ant farm. There's a couple of those shots in the briefing room when Scully's brought in and she's having this conversation. She's talking about Mulder's work. You get that view of the table kind of like in a nice sort of square that gives you a sort of symmetrical shape around the frame which is absolutely beautiful there's a moment later on where you know scully's talking scully and Mulder after they've you know sort of first seen the presentation about the alien and scully's you know this is not really my jam it's not my dying wish to see this and Mulder has this conversation with her about god but you have this wonderful closing shot uh in the sequence where the camera is just staring down this spiral staircase and it looks almost like you're staring at a big gigantic human eye to a certain extent and it's absolutely beautiful and these things are again really really artful and really creative and very the episode is is again you you point out it's not a typical mythology episode uh, and it, that's very evident to feel the cast but even in terms of like pacing um mythology episodes particularly season finales tend to be quite propulsive like think of like even the Erlenmeyer flask for example where you have like the death of deep throat which is pushing you on but think of anasazi where you have like Mulder's gone completely around the bend um oh my god like, you know he's gonna kill Krychek his dad's dead scully shot him and it just keeps going and going and going and getting higher Mulder's naked in bed now for some reason and it just keeps going um but even like talitha kumi uh where you have like things you know even then you have it begins with a hostage crisis and just kind of mm. runs from there and like it gets to a sequence where like again the cliffhanger doesn't sound impressive when you say it uh, but like it works relatively well of Mulder and Scully being chased through a quarry in the style of Doctor Who um, but like again these these finales typically have a propulsive quality to them Gethsemane is much more meditative it's much yeah. more relaxed and again that opening shot that you point to with like the golden hue this sort of like almost like nostalgic or something like old fashioned like old film to a certain extent kind of adds to that where it feels like something much grander to a certain extent much more kind of like old-fashioned and relaxed and it's kind of interesting to contrast that and again not to step on the toes of whoever will be discussing the the fifth season premiere but to compare that with the more frantic oliver stoneisms of like Re- uh, redux part one and redux part two which is a much more kinetic and sort of frantic style even when it's literally just Mulder walking through great corridors i really like the meditative quality of this and i think the goodwin does phenomenal work here yeah and it, it's there absolutely i completely agree and it's there from the outset with with this scene and it sort of it continues in that vein with uh, the uh, when scully goes to the fbi panel they create this great square room with with the with the tables in a, in a square formation with the lights in the middle and it, it re- it's a really impressive set it's very sort of it feels like an enclosed sort of box in which scully is brought in this secret room within the fbi you know where <laughs> where they meet i love for... the fbi's lighting department it's like can we turn the main <laughs> lights on no 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 it's much more atmospheric if we just light it using desk lights. Um, so, but i can't yeah. read my shut up dave yeah it doesn't <laughs> matter right <laughs> yeah. which is where she obviously then says that she's she's here to debunk Mulder's work and you're a bit like oh okay what is going on here 
And we obviously Scully get... is doing her job is what's Scully... going on here. Thank <laughs> yeah. you, Tony. Scully's finally. doing her job after yeah. yeah, after five years. Scott um... Levens is like, finally I can retire. That was the one <laughs> open case that I had. It's like I haven't been around here because I've been fishing. I've been like I've technically been retired. I've just been waiting for this one thing to come in. Well, I was that was what I was about to say. Obviously we see Charles uh Chaffee return as Section Chief Scott Blevins after I think the last time we saw him was in Conduit. I feel like it was Conduit way back in season one. I, I might be wrong. It might be after that. But he was in the pilot and then he crops up again and then that's it. You don't see him again. And then obviously season one has that really awkward point where it's trying to find the boss character. It has that um, McGrath character in Fallen Angel who's just a dick. And then... And then finally, they finally get to Skinner and they've got a really good character and a really good actor in Mitch Pelleggi. But Blevins was... I mean, this is it. Obviously, where where Blevins goes, we'll talk more about in, in Redux because it's it's interesting there what happens. But Blevins surely was, was established originally as supposed to be that boss character. I mean, I, I don't know what you think, Darren. I'm I'm of the mind that if in originally he would have... He was supposed to morph into... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. To not Skinner as such, but that recurring figure. Yeah, probably a bit more antagonistic than Skinner, although not as much screen presence as Mitch Pelleggi. And again, yeah, they got very, very lucky with Skinner and Mitch Pelleggi. It's hard to complain. I don't think, like, no offense to, like, the three Blevins, like, stands out there. Um, mm. We complete, I completely respect your views and your, your fandom and your admiration of Blevins, <laughs> but he just doesn't have that screen presence that I think that Skinner has. Um, no, and that, no. I think that's I think that's fair. What's interesting, though, is that and this is something that pops up particularly on rewatch is that like Blevins involvement here. And you're right. You mentioned that I think his last involvement was conjured. I'm not sure if that's exactly it, but you're right that it's the first time he's appeared on screen since then. But he did have a cameo earlier in the fourth season uh, when he appears in Musings of a Cigarette Smoking Man via his voice, uh, via the Does recording really? of the pilot episode. Is yeah, he true? Pops up and he's, he's on the he's on the voice recording. The bit oh. that... Uh, yeah, the bit that the, the cigarette smoking man is listening of to. Of course. I thought you meant new material then. I was like, No, really? no, no. <laughs> no, like, no, no. I've missed that one. Yeah, like, yeah of no. course he does. Cause he was out fishing. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay, he was out fishing for um. four years. Um, but yeah, yeah, and he's, cause that, he's, he's listening to the, they're listening to the, yeah, the original conversation. Yeah, of course. And it's, it's that whole, that gap. He's, he, he, the, what's interesting is that he's a character that the audience, probably had forgotten or the majority of the audience had completely (laughs) forgotten and then he pops up and i'll say this he pops up in a really relevant way because he's the guy who scully originally was sent down there 
you know, not obviously, she was sent down there by the smoking man, ultimately, wasn't she? You know, she was sent down there by that. But Blevins was the guy at the very beginning. Hey, you know, hey, in that hey, first let's, scene. Give, let's give Blevo the credit he deserves. <laughs> I'm calling him Blevo. Blevo, Blevo, yeah. Blevo. That's, <laughs> that's his school name coming back again. Yeah. Oi, Blevo! Um, <laughs> like the skin man. Blev man. Blevo, Blev. Let's stick with Blevo. We could start, Blevo. we could start, we could start the Blevin fandom right here, I think. Yeah. Tony. Yeah, the bit there. Team Blevo. Yeah, okay. Yeah. It begins. But hashtag, hashtag. Blairheads. Blair. <laughs> the Blair. The Blairheads. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, he, he he comes back in a really relevant way because he's he, connecting back to Scully's original mission. And I think that's clever in that they, you know, they could have, they could have just drafted in another FBI guy, couldn't they? They could have just got in, you know, they could have tried to wedge Skinner into that role in some awkward way, but they don't. They have Blevins come back. And I think that's a really neat idea, actually. And I think it's actually a very important one as well, because again, not to, not to get too distracted by you know the joy of having Blevo back. It's more <laughs> that like the fourth season as a whole has this interesting engagement with the show's history and past. Mm. I mean, you're thinking about like obviously I mentioned his audio cameo and things like Music of a Cigarette Smoking Man, but if you look at like the late season two parter, the wonderfully underrated uh, Max. Yeah, um, you know, Tempest Fugit. Yeah. Tempest Fugit and Max. Um, that two parter brings back a character who had one previous appearance in the mm. first season as well, uh, which is kind of an interesting thing. You have the show kind of going back in a way to that. And again, here you have Scully, as you point out, Levins is back to bring back Scully's original mission and to have her kind of complete what she set out to do in the pilot. And you have this kind of idea of like, closure to a certain extent not to spoil where Blevo goes in the next two episodes but you have this idea of like you know wrapping up kind of loose ends and kind of like going back to what the show originally was and kind of interrogating that and deciding to move forward from it because one of the interesting contrasts between the fourth and fifth seasons the fourth season is very much focused on going back to the first season of the X-Files. So things like the the recurring presence of Blevins, for example, the audio recording in Music of Cigarette Smoking Man, Max Fennig brought back for a big two-parter, mythology two-parter. Um, and it's all about kind of contextualizing those and going, well, how does, how does the first season of the X-Files fit with what the show has become now? And then what you have in the fifth season, which is, is much, you know, is, is an interesting angle that kind of develops that, is you have, like, the secret history of the X-Files. You have this show kind of looking back to a past that never actually existed and kind of, like, fictionalizing and expanding it. Like, over the course of the fifth season, you get no fewer than three different origin stories for the X-Files. You get Mulder getting fear-gassed in Unusual Suspects. You have Mulder, <laughs> like, opening the case files with Darren McGavin's help in Travelers. And you mm. have Mulder finding the X-Files case files, uh, you know, in the season finale with diana fowley so you have like the show you have this kind of interesting kind of gap between the fourth and fifth seasons where the fourth season is like let's go back to where it started and kind of wrap up that and the fifth season's well well now since you've done that let's actually go back even further and create an entire like fictional history and kind of multiple Mm. fictional histories and like an expansive past that is so vast it cannot actually possibly be contained And it's kind of fascinating because you have that here. It's the show, like, Mulder's death here and the idea of, like, Scully finally, finally, finally doing the job she was hired to do four years ago (laughs) allows the show to kind of move beyond that in the fifth season, to kind of balloon and kind of blossom and kind of resurrect itself and kind of, like, free itself from the shackles. You know, not the shackles, because that's unfair, but to kind of free itself from any constraints it may have inherited in the first season. Because a large part of this episode is about Carter grappling with, I think what he expected the show to be in the first season 
uh, you know, and the fifth season then is about him realizing and celebrating what the show actually is to a certain extent. So, like, this episode aired at the end of the fourth season at the point where the show was a cultural phenomenon. It was attracting a massive amount of, of kind of attention and discussion. Not all of that attention was positive. Uh, famously, The New Yorker, which had been one of the uh, magazines that championed the show's arrival in the first season. Like, I think Glenn Morgan uh, has talked about knowing that The X-Files was a hit when he picked up The New Yorker and The New Yorker was praising the first season. The New Yorker basically wrote a hit piece uh, in early 1997, which was like The X-Files had kind of jumped the shark, even if that hadn't kind of, that term hadn't entered the popular kind of consciousness to that extent at that time. But you had other discussions as well, where you had, for example, Richard Dawkins uh, delivering the Dimbleby uh, lecture in 1996, in which he basically laid into the show. And he laid into the show on grounds that Carter himself had laid out early on. Early on, Carter had imagined that the show would equally split its attention between cases that were real, paranormal cases that couldn't be explained, cases that were actually extraterrestrial nature or, like, supernatural, and cases that would be hoaxes or false or explicable or grounded in science. And the idea was that you would balance these two extremes, that over the course of the show, it wouldn't just be Mulder's right, I think, 99.8% of the time, as he describes it in Fight Club, uh, which is possibly (laughs) the only time somebody has cited Fight Club um, in a discussion (laughs) involving Richard Dawkins. Uh, But also even like if you go and you look at things like, for example... um, but yeah, basically the idea was that that Scully would be right an equal number of times, or Scully would have a perspective that would be equally validated by the show. Anybody who had been watching the show up until that point knows, up until this point, knows that that isn't the case. Mulder is right pretty much all the time. Scully is wrong. And like, the fourth season is one of those points where you're like, where you're really like, Scully, just just accept it. Like the point where in Kaddish, where she's explaining how a book can catch fire, it's like, I don't know, maybe gasoline got into the coffin <laughs> and it was exposed to air and it's like the moment where it's like oh and time travel exists and scully's like ah i'm just gonna sit this one out thank you very much um and you can tell the show is kind of and and it's a fair criticism the show to make but like people like richard dawkins for example was arguing that this was damaging to society that this was a bad influence that this represented a creative failure but also a cultural failure on the part of the show carter also came in from criticism in was it the um Demon Haunted World by Carl Sagan, who actually makes an appearance later in the episode on Mulder's sort of recording. In The Demon Haunted World, Carl Sagan um, laid into a lot of contemporary science fiction and proved himself to be absolutely no fun at all. I love Carl Sagan, but he's... Re- <laughs> but, like, he, he would criticise things from a scientific ground, ignoring, like, theories of narrative. So, for example, he got really upset at things like Star Trek portraying uh, characters who were, like, hybrids of humans and extraterrestrials, because, obviously, scientifically speaking, extraterrestrials would likely be so different from us that interbreeding would be impossible. Um, but that misses the point that, like, the idea of Spock being half-human and half-Vulcan isn't really about humans breeding with extraterrestrials. It's about the idea of being a child caught between two worlds of like people who are separated by divides of race, class, culture, and distance are able to be similar enough that they can produce a child and build a family together. And that's what Spock's like status as a half human and half Vulcan is. It's not a scientific argument. Uh, But Sagan really, really, really laid into the X-Files and argued that it was creating this culture of, like, you know, new ageism and and people who were embracing, like, paranormal and and paranoid belief systems without any real kind of critical thought. And again, it's worth noting 
that around the same time, in, in 1995, the same year that The Demon Haunted World was released, you had the Oklahoma City bombing, in which Timothy McVeigh um, blew up a government building um, and killed over 100 people. And McVeigh would become the forefront of the militia movement. And these movements would believe things that are perhaps not a million miles away from like a literal belief of the X-Files, which is that the US government was doing terrible, terrible things to its citizens, and those citizens had to fight back in any way necessary. Um, and along the same times, like when Carter came to Europe uh, to promote Fight the Future, to jump forward two or three years, Carter was still feeling questions from Der Spiegel about like how he felt about things like the paranoia of Timothy McVeigh or the ascendance of a militia movement, which was just as skeptical as the government of the X-Files. And he was kind of tackling those ideas directly. It's it's worth noting that actually shortly before the episode was written, um, so in June 1996, actually, so in the gap between the third and fourth seasons, Carter spoke to the Committee for the Scientific Investigations of Claims of the Paranormal, which is a skeptical group. And they really, really, really grilled him on the fact that the X-Files had embraced this idea of the paranormal and embraced this idea of like outlandish theories like aliens and like, you know, monsters that can stretch and monsters that eat liver and stuff like that. And Carter, you know, Carter is, is relatively good at public speaking and he's able to handle the questions quite well. He makes the observation that like it's a narrative reason why Mulder's always right because stories where Mulder is right are inherently more interesting than mm. stories where Scully's right, just narratively speaking. It's much more interesting to tell a story about Bigfoot than it is to tell a story about faking Bigfoot, unless yeah. you're telling a story about faking Bigfoot using another Bigfoot or something. I don't know. But like, <laughs> it, it's much more interesting to believe the world is magical and to use allegory and metaphor to make your points mm. than it is to be strictly literal-minded. And watching this episode... It feels like, and again, I haven't interviewed Carter, I haven't talked to him, I haven't read interviews where he's tackled this idea directly, but it feels like, to me as a viewer, that Carter is grappling with these questions about the X-Files and about what it's about, and about why it's about it in the way that it is, and kind of closing the book on, you know, maybe what he had intended the show to be in the first season, but which it never became. So you have... Blevins, as you pointed out, the ghost of the first season, coming back and he's calling Scully in to debunk Mulder's work, which is what she was supposed to have been doing, you know, in the original plan for a season, but it didn't plan out that way for narrative reasons. So you have the show kind of exhuming its own history and kind of grappling and wrestling with that. And obviously, when we talk about things like uh, Krishkow later on, we'll talk more directly about like the show dealing with this legacy of kind of like paranoia and kind of uncertainty and mistrust and fear and kind of belief systems that maybe aren't entirely true and where they fall in like what Carter was actually trying to say about like questioning authority and healthy skepticism. But this this is where it's interesting with, you know, you mentioned earlier about how when you were younger, you struggled with the literal reality of how could a story like this be written when the show has given us black oil, when the show has given us, you know, alien bounty hunters, you know, and it's that, it is that, that, you know, element of, it's ironic in that there is a certain suspension of disbelief with this, in that you have to almost, (laughs) it's almost the inversion of that, you know, whereas, whereas historically you'd have to suspend belief with the whole idea of, of a black oil virus now, you know, or an alien bounty hunter. Now you have to flip that on its head and think, do I believe that all of that wasn't true? Do I believe that 
they, 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 you know, they, they can fake an EBE in a mountain. Can, can Therefore, they, fake... they can fake like radiation emitting black oil. Right? Can yeah. they fake a shape shifting, you know, Terminator? And it, and it, but, uh, but it's, and that's that's the irony now that you have to, you have to almost, be- you have to believe that lie as a viewer in many ways, you know. And that's the tagline when we get into the teaser. You know, believe the lie replaces the truth is out there because it's almost like Carter's willing you to you to believe that lie. Don't worry, and and he's telling that he does this again. In the revival series, you know, he essentially re- repackages this whole trilogy, you know, for the, for the My Struggles, you know, particularly My Struggle 1. He just does it in a more contemporary way. And he presents the idea that actually all that stuff you saw, maybe that's not quite what it is. And obviously in the end, once we get into season five without tracking too far ahead, it sort of doubles back on this. You know, and it, and but it does, it does for, if to its credit, try and play with the idea for a while that maybe Mulder would lose faith in, and maybe the audience should be encouraged to lose faith in everything we think we know about the X-Files. And, that, and that's one of the great things about the show. That's why I think much as people were frustrated about the revival series from a canonical point of view, I think the point that they missed was that Carter's constantly with the X-Files trying to make you question the reality of not just what you see, in the show, but what what all what this kind of reality itself means, you know, and he does it through the character of Mulder and through his experience, particularly in Gethsemane, and I think that's really good. And I, okay, round two, name something that's not boring. A laundry. Oh, a book club. Computer solitaire. Huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I think it's it's a challenging thing to do, like you say, to deconstruct the concept of the show. But it is about having to... <laughs> you have to sort of go with this. And you, you, you have to be... If you're invested enough in the characters and the, and the journey they... Because it is quite a character piece, and because that, that, yeah. that's the thing about this, like you say, it's more meditative. Because it is particularly a Scully character piece as well, as much as Mulder. And when you compare that with Talitha Kumi, we, and that one of our criticisms when we did Talitha Kumi last year was that Scully's barely in it. You know, yeah. she doesn't have anything to do. That, that is and absolutely... it's all about like a little pointy thing. Like it's, yeah. like, it's like crap Excalibur. <laughs> I think we described it. Like, <laughs> yeah. Basically, the plot. And I love Talitha Kumi, but it's yeah. basically crap Excalibur. It's crap, it's Gulliver. We, we, we both really like that episode and all the big ideas that are in it. But this is ha, this has big ideas, but it also has the more intimate character points. And I, I think that that's where it's a stronger piece and a stronger rounded episode. Yeah, and I think actually it's, it's quite interesting that you should point this to the Revival series because there is a bit of cultural kind of context there as well. And again, this is something where I think Gethsemane has aged really well. I think it's a testament to how much thought and how much consideration Carter 
put into this. And again, it's worth noting, this is one of the rare mythology stretches that is written exclusively by Carter without any input from Spotnitz as well. This is Carter asserting like complete authorship of the X-Files, you know, as much as he would before he started directing his own, well, he's already directed like the list and stuff, but before he started like really committing to that uh, with the My Struggles and stuff like that. But in terms of uh, what you discussed there, it's, it's again, this wonderfully kind of, again, Darren's going to use artsy-fartsy words and stuff, but where it's, post, it's post-modern to the point where it's, like, what Carter's doing is he's taking the skepticism of the X-Files and applying it to the X-Files almost reflexively, which is very, very clever. Um, and again, I think it's, it is something that exists kind of culturally. Like, I understand being narratively frustrated, and I think that the show, in this case, at least, and I think the revival doesn't work because it doesn't have, it, it doesn't understand like that narrative suspension of disbelief as well as this episode does. I think watching this episode, watching Gethsemane and even the Redux trilogy uh, or Redux duology in the, in the fifth season, it's very clear. The show doesn't entirely expect you to trust it, which is wonderfully, Mm. again, wonderfully Mm. postmodern. The X-Files saying, trust no one. (laughs) Don't even trust us, uh, which is very clever. No, no, I think that's like the, no, it is. Yeah, yeah, Uh, it is. Yeah. And I think the show understands that narratively, you as a viewer know that you've seen, you know, Brian Thompson change his face. So you know that aliens are real or otherwise Carter's going to have to pull something massive out of his hat, uh, which exists beyond the realm of like your ability to think. I think one of my issues with the revival series is that the shift narratively, you don't have that same like suspension of disbelief. The, it, it expects you to take that a lot more at face value and to kind of commit with it and kind of run with it. But what I will say that joins the two, um, and why I think Gethsemane has aged relatively well, is that I think the shift that happened in the Revival series was something that Carter was doing very consciously in response to like broader shifts in culture. And again, I think that uh, Ingu Kang uh, wrote a wonderful piece at Vulture, uh, celebrating the show's 20th anniversary, where she talked about how it was hard to watch The X-Files uh, in contemporary America, I mean in the contemporary world, uh, where like values of truth were no longer as absolute as they once were, where conspiracy theories run rampant in the way that they do now, and where nobody can agree on a shape of consensus reality. I think like Kurt Anderson, you know, one of the great essayists, uh, you know, in American culture at the moment argued that, you know, how America lost its mind um, to a certain extent. And it's not just America, it's the rest of the world as well. You know, I'm not, I don't want to be like that guy who's complaining about America, particularly. It is the rest of the world. It happens over here in Ireland. It's happened in the UK with Brexit and stuff like that. There's this disconnect that exists between reality, uh, you know, and the perception of reality. And I think that what Carter was doing with the revival was taking a look at the show and realizing that he had to recalibrate it for the current climate because if you're doing an episode about an alien invasion at the same time that a u.s presidential candidate is saying things like they're not sending us their best you're sending messages that you know i don't believe carter would have wanted to send so i understand that he shifted it in that way what i think the show doesn't get enough credit for is being ahead of its critics in that regard of being ahead of people uh like ingu kang i think it's a great piece that she wrote and i think there's another piece in grantland that covers the same ground as well for the same anniversary but the show was like to its credit ahead of those criticisms like 10 15 years before they were made because the show is very much realizing there's a sense here that carter is looking at his work and realizing that it can be read in ways that make him uncomfortable like that if somebody were to take the x-files at face value as like dawkins is arguing that some people do as sagan is arguing that some people do as critics of the show in the wake of the oklahoma bombing were arguing that some people were 
um, Carter's, like, Gethsemane is basically Carter saying, all right, fine, I'm going to roll up my sleeves. I'm going to show you exactly why the show is the way it is. Because what he does is he strips out every element of fantasy from the X-Files. He strips out every element of hope. He strips out every element of belief. He strips out every element that can't be explained uh, scientifically. He lays the metaphor at the heart of the show absolutely bare. And he says, look, this is what a realistic X-Files episode would look like. This is what the X-Files would look like if it was actually happening. It would be a story of exploitation, of abuse, of deception, of betrayal, and it would just be horrible. It would be soul-destroying. It would push you to the brink of madness, to look at it and to contemplate how people have been lied to, how people have been treated, how people have been abused, and then says, that's why you layer the fantasy on top of it. That's why... Mulder's belief in aliens is important not because I actually believe in aliens and not because aliens actually exist but because when you're telling this sort of story you need to have some element of like faith or hope or belief or an abstract concept that like coats all of this in a way that makes it palatable because otherwise you're just staring into an abyss and that abyss is very dark and very depressing and will leave you just crying on the couch contemplating the nature of your existence. Much like watching Millennium Season 1, actually. Um, <laughs> yes, actually, that's a very good point. That's a really which good I, point. <laughs> which, I, which I love, I hasten to yes. add. But yeah. But no, it's, that's, that's really true. And, I, and it, that's why it's really interesting, I think, as well, what, what he does with Scully in this episode. Because I, it, it, it's been a long time since he's focused on the Scully family dynamic. And obviously in this, he introduces Bill Scully. You know, we the, the first time we see any of Scully's brothers outside of like a flashback, you know, a really weird flashback in one breath. And we, we meet Bill Scully, who is very much the, you know, the, the, the patriarch of the family now, now that, um, you know, William Scully's gone. He even um, tells dad jokes. Yeah, he like, tells dad like jokes. Like his establishing He's... character moments are two dad jokes one after the other. It's like, well, my ship got stuck in traffic. And the parrot says, hey, what do the chicken do? <laughs> yeah, I, two dad jokes. Although I have to say... And I still I do... somehow hate him. It's amazing. Oh, well, it's, I know. The, it, what made me laugh was the um, <laughs> the reaction laugh that Gillian Anderson does to that to the um, uh, the joke about the, the, the ship. The ship in traffic, yeah. It's a terrible reaction. She, she's just a, ha, 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 ha. It's like, oh, yeah, whatever. You know. <laughs> so oh, funny. you, Bill. So awkward. I didn't yeah. miss this at all. <laughs> yeah, and it, that's the thing. He is, he's interest. He's an interesting character, and obviously they play with him a little bit more in the in the subsequent half season. You know, he crops up in Redux, he crops up in the Christmas Carol two parter, and I think and he that beyond that they kind he kind of out, that's his usefulness done really. But he provides, I think, a good a good counterpoint to everything because he's kind of yes, much as he's quite. He's quite arrogant, you know. He's this arrogant naval man in many ways. As he's just, he's a bit annoying. At the same time, he does provide a sort of grounded reality to Scully's life, and I think that's what's interesting about these scenes. In that, you know, Carter's done so much with with getting Scully involved in all this vast conspiracy. You know, this the aliens, she's lost, you know, a sister to it and all this kind of thing. She's got cancer, all these high concept, you know, things she's been involved in over the last through, through few years. But this episode has her back at home with her family and her brother turning around and saying, you're dying of cancer. And where is this guy that you are 
devoting so much of your life to? You know, where is I, I thought I think I think that's a really good scene where he says, "Where is he then?" You know, this man who is your partner and potentially I think Bill can tell that there is there is more to how she feels about him than just his her partner at work. You know, you get that sort of under, underlying feeling with him that he knows that, especially once once we get into Redux. But it's it's I think it's it's a really strong aspect to throw in there and obviously you know coupled with with the, the mirroring of, of scully's own faith and questioning her you know in the importance of the church in her life as opposed to Mulder's, you know driven belief in aliens and faith in, in in finding extraterrestrial life i think it's a really good contrast and i really like how much he decides to focus on it here yeah and the thing about bill is that Despite the fact Bill is a complete asshole, and you know, despite the fact that you are no, you're, you're and again, you're naturally weighted to disagree with Bill because we all love Mulder as much as yeah. he is a you know a you know a horrible mess of a human being in many yeah. many ways. Mulder is inherently charming and yeah. generally well-meaning, and you know, yeah. you know, he's he's been through a lot. It's easy to love Mulder, Bill. Scully, you know, sure he has dad jokes. That that's the one redeeming feature he has. Other than that, he just comes across as this sort of like stoic, kind of stern, lecturing, dis- emotionally distant figure. And so it's very easy for the audience to kind of go, "Well, Bill Scully's a jerk." Uh, but the point is, he he actually makes a very credible point. And there's like again, this is the a recurring thing that happens throughout Gethsemane, where you have the show engaging in kind of criticisms. You know, of the characters, but that are also inherently kind of criticisms of itself to a certain extent. I think that, like, a lot of the use of Scully here, and in particular her interactions with Mulder throughout, are very much kind of, to a certain extent, criticisms of how the show has sometimes, and not always, I think the show has done wonderful stuff with Scully, particularly, say, in the third season, uh, when it handled her abduction arc, and kind of used that to tell a broader story about, like, Scully trying to assert control of her own body and trying to, like, find her own narrative within Mulder's narrative. Uh, But, like, generally speaking, the show has a tendency to, and again, this is the thing that we describe as Scully ditching, uh, but even like Talitha Kumi, which, which we described as there, an episode that doesn't give Scully a lot to do, or Heronvoke, where Scully's primary function is to deliver a PowerPoint presentation. Uh, but like, you have this <laughs> idea of the show marginalizing Scully to a, to a certain extent, particularly in these mythology episodes. And it feels like Bill coming in and actually saying that is a really nice touch. It's a very mm. honest piece of reflection. Again, yeah. this is a very reflective episode, I think. Yeah, and it, it's almost surprising, really, because, you know, it's very easy to get carried away with the romance of Mulder's quest. But this episode, in a way, sort of grounds everything. It sort of makes... It sort of offers the point to Scully that actually maybe, you know, maybe your family is important, maybe your faith is important. It's it's almost like, should Scully believe in Mulder anymore? You know, the, we can't, you constantly get to that point. And that, that tracks with... The you know the the consistent return to her in the FBI box, seemingly betraying him. You know, seemingly being the Judas Iscariot. You know, as as the Gethsemane story goes, and it's this whole idea of should Scully would Scully ever get to a point where you know she loses faith in him and his quest? And I think that's something that that crops up plenty of times as to how far she will go. You know, there's loads of episodes where she goes, I can't go with you, Mulder. I can't go there and do this. You know, and well, that's the entire point of the feature film. It's you know, it's yeah, basically exactly. planes, yeah. trains, and automobiles, but with Mulder and Scully, and Scully yeah. taking a job elsewhere. Like, I mean, it's it's a classic. <laughs> no, it, like, fight the future is many things, but it's also like a screwball road trip comedy starring Mulder and Scully. Um, <laughs> oh, we've got to get you on the uh, the fight the future <laughs> episodes to can put that out there. 
<laughs> but like it's it's it is it is really interesting i think to do that at this point because it fits with the broader idea of the episode and i think it it gives it gives Gillian Anderson that aspect to play with Scully where she's not and, it, and well i th- i think it, it fits with Scully's general character arc throughout this season which is i think pretty strong you know i think the whole cancer arc and the way it's they experiment with how they do it really you know from episodes such as never again you know that the, the memento and, memento yeah. mori leonard betts you know even elegy which is a crap episode really but it's got some good moments of scully you know, realising should she be at work? You know, is she facing down her mortality in the right way? All this kind of thing. So, you know, it, it, it's been doing that throughout the latter half of season four. So to get to a point now where she she's not, she's not like on her last legs yet, but she she's aware that this cancer is catching up with her. And I think, I, so I think it's good to bring back the religious and the faith aspect and make it really important to this trilogy because... For her, you know, the the idea of God, and you know, it plays into the broader ideas of get what what the the episode is, you know, the the very quest itself. But I, I just I just think thematically, Carter gets it gets it right here with both of the characters that they he mirrors their journeys in some respects. Yeah, and 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 I think that's that's really that's really skillful writing. You know? It is, and I mean, like I we're going to talk a little bit about the fourth season, I think, when we get to the end of the podcast. But one of my issues with the fourth season is that it's not as cohesive as, say, the third season or even the fifth season either side of it. Uh, because And there's lots of reasons for that, because Carter was, like, running two shows and writing a feature film at the same time. So it's kind of churlish for me to say, well, actually, it doesn't really hang together entirely coherently as much as some of Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chum. Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Of the other season of the show. <laughs> but um, like it's more experimental. Show, isn't it? It, it is it's more really, experimental. What, and it, yeah. And it gets wilder and it swings wilder and it doesn't mm. always hit. And it kind of throws these big things out there. And like, this is the thing where I think we talked about this in the podcast before, where like one of the things about writing television in the 90s where you didn't have a Bible going in and you didn't map out your entire arc, like as soon as you came back from your summer break, you just sort of found it as you're going along, is that you got these little simmering, bubbling ideas going through it. So like Scully's, you know, cancer and, and kind of her, her search for faith and this sort of like deconstruction unraveling of this question, even in 
like um, Tempest Fugitive and Max, this question of like why she's still with Mulder. What's she doing with Mulder? Is she going to accomplish anything? Is she going to, you know, end up like those astronauts? You know, that sort of thing. Those sort of like, is her life going to end up lost in somebody else's quest? And how you have this whole thing sort of unspooling from what was basically a situation where Darren Morgan couldn't get a script delivered on time. So the writers were like, feck it, let's do this thing. Uh, which is <laughs> kind of amazing when the whole season kind of flows from that point. But yeah. even even outside that, you have things that kind of like small things that add up over the course of the season and kind of point towards Gethsemane without pointing like literally towards them. So, for example, like, again, you have this focus on militias that runs through the fourth season in episodes like um, Tunguska and Terma, for example, where Krychek joins a militia, but even in Unrequited, uh, to offer another example, which is one where, you know, obviously it's the invisible serviceman, but that involves like going undercover in a militia, not going undercover, but like investigating a militia, discovering kind of what they're doing and stuff like that. But even even things like, um, to, pick, to pick another example, the kind of the sense of the sense of kind of skepticism of, of Mulder's quest that's like seated in things like, you know, Max and Tempest Fugit. This idea of like questioning whether all of this is worth anything or whether like Mulder's quest is not like defined as this kind of epic Joseph Campbellian sort of struggle, but is instead kind of something that should be focused on more immediate and more personal questions. Because again, that's that's what Scully's journey is. Scully's journey towards faith is a personal journey, as opposed to this big epic sort of adventure that Mulder thinks he's on. And here you have him literally like trekking through snow in the Yukon <laughs> Mountains. You have him sort of... Yeah. No, you have these like, again, it, again yeah. like, you can tell Carter is a fan of Frankenstein because you have these shots of like people wandering through, you know, the sort of like snowy tundra, like mm-hmm. on the quest for adventure, you know, which is again, the start of Frankenstein. But you have this idea of like going literally to the ends of the earth in pursuit of his quest but you have that juxtaposed with this small intimate family dinner where scully is just sitting down with the priest with the local priest and kind of contemplating her own mortality in a way that is much more intimate and much more personal and again you have this kind of like the show i think the show balances those two approaches very well throughout its run and I think like part of doing that is the way in which it weds Mulder's personal life to this epic story. But I think that mm. what Gethsemane does is it contrasts those two relatively well. Because yeah. again, this is a this is a very good Mulder episode and a very good Scully episode. Mm. But what's remarkable about it is that it's not necessarily a very good Mulder and Scully episode, and that's intentional. It's like it's two different episodes, one of which is a very good Mulder episode, one of which is a very good Scully episode, unfolding in parallel, but never quite intersecting or overlapping, uh, which mm. I think, or, or at least until the climax of the episode. And I think that's something that speaks to its credit. But but, but even, well, absolutely, but even in a way at the climax, once Mulder's gone off to the mountain, you know, with Arlinsky and he's he's found you know, the body and they bring it back and it's autopsy and you've got Scott Osselhoff, <laughs> the ill fated Scott Osselhoff. I, I absolutely around. I absolutely love by the way the fact that the conspiracy is so inept they left a fecking borehole. Like I love that like they went to so much effort. And it's like this is so perfect. It's Chimera cells. We like we ate the ice over a course of a year in order to get it right. And it's like, dude, did you remember to fill the borehole? Uh right, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, we've said this before that they are—they make so many mistakes. <laughs> yeah, it's what? like it's comical, 
And yeah. that, if anything, that makes them a realistic conspiracy. Yes. Because I don't think, you know, any any conspiracy out there, I'm dubious of because it would take a logistical, like, genius to pull it all off. So the fact that they keep getting things wrong makes sense. But but it's I think your your point about the intersection I think even after all this and they and they eventually come together with Critchgow, Michael Critchgow. Incidentally, just while I think of it, named after a former drama teacher of Gillian Anderson, apparently Michael Critchgow. Yeah, but once they come to him, even then they they don't intersect in a way because Mulder can't accept it. You know, he doesn't. When Critchgow is sitting there trying to explain, Scully's sort of in the back with that look on her face. It's a bit like. Oh, Mulder, this all makes sense. This is all logical. Like, I don't finally. Want... Finally. finally. She, she, she <laughs> doesn't... Well, but, but she's not I happy. Know, know. No, because, she's not. Because... <laughs> but that's the thing. She looks really awkward because she knows that this is just going to destroy him. And then at the same time, she's looking at Critchka going, yeah, but all this, yeah, okay. It's a bit, It's a bit like of a reach, but this makes much more sense than... You know, a UFO knocking about in that main and that kind of thing. Do you know? And and that's yeah. and even then, you have, well, you have them... the the wonderful tragedy. And again, this is the thing yeah. where like like the the conflict that you have between Bill Scully and Mulder, where like objectively you should be like, yeah, Bill Scully, but he's a bit of an asshole. And like Mulder, you should be like, well, you kind of deserve this a little bit, Mulder, because you're not really that attentive to other people's needs. <laughs> where you have like no, but earlier in the episode, you have the conversation again in the stairwell, in that wonderfully shot stairwell uh, with O.W. Goodwin, where Mulder's like, mm. you know, but what if somebody disproved God existed? Yeah. And like Scully's like, I don't really think about that. It doesn't really bother me. It's not something that preoccupies me. And you have Mulder there, like, and you have the sort of Damocles or dramatic irony dangling over his head like a feckin' anvil. And he's like, yeah, but what if somebody could prove that your god didn't exist? How hilarious would that be? And it's like, well, let's sit you down and have a conversation, Mulder. <laughs> but that's the thing. He's, that's a really good scene because he's, he gets frustrated at Scully's faith in God because Scully doesn't feel the need to be constantly questioning it. Whereas he is ang- has a lot of anxiety about aliens because he doesn't because he because even though on on a, on a on a logistical level he might be able to find that proof. He might be able to find that UFO, find that alien body, you know, scientifically prove the existence of an EBE or whatever. And Scully says, you know, it, it's it, it, proving the existence of God isn't, you know, it's not it, proving the existence of alien life isn't my last dying wish but it's that whole she doesn't feel the need to prove god either because she knows it's pretty much impossible but it's that and that's what frustrates him because he does feel the need to prove what he has faith in and then when you when when she brings a very rational conspiracy assassin (laughs) to his apartment sits him down and says okay right so this is this is all the sort of you know um covert science that we've employed to to give you disinformation for decades then this is like you know it's a big deal it's a and that's why you you sense his frustration and his anger at her her faith and i think that comes across really well often it's quite petty you know in previous episodes he's you know the joke being that the only thing Mulder doesn't believe in is god you know in that sense it's all it's sometimes it's a bit petty and you get those awkward episodes like revelations where they flip the dynamic and she becomes the believer and he's the skeptic and it never really works properly because it it sort of goes against Mulder's character in many ways but in this it works because he's you feel his frustration at at her faith i think and and that and him having to like you say pet questioner in those ways what if god could be proven 
that shows up his insecurity and i think that i think that's really clever writing really well well constructed you know well, it's also the, like the the beautiful dramatic irony of like Gethsemane as a whole. Because mm. I mean, like this is nominally an episode about like dismissing all of the paranormal trappings of the mythology of the X Files. Like nominally, although it's smart enough to realize that you, as a viewer, are smart enough to see that it can't possibly be doing that because that would mm. be a hell of a disappointing conclusion and would dramatically contradict everything you've seen to this point. But the show kind of has this kind of level of like irony where in seeming to disprove this point it actually makes the case for the inclusion of this stuff because Mulder has to believe like the the Mulder like existentially has to believe and again this is the reason Samantha if you want to bring it back to Samantha because you know despite what Mulder says in Oubliette almost everything with Mulder can be brought back to Samantha in some way but it's it's this idea that you know Mulder has two choices uh, when it comes to believing what happened to Samantha one is he can believe that she was, you know, taken... Again, this happens earlier in the season with Paper Hearts. Throughout the season, you have this recurring motif of, like, questioning and, like, interrogating and, like, attacking some of the core principles of the X-Files or some of the core assumptions on which it's based. Like, even Paper Hearts does this thematically, where Mulder has to choose between, you know, believing that Scully was killed by a pedophile... Uh, not sorry, that Samantha... Uh, was killed by a paedophile. And, you know, like, a a mundane crime to a certain extent that, you know, a tragedy that that happens to to too many families far too often is completely explicable and means that he, he lost her in a very real and tangible way. Or he can believe that she was taken by aliens and that he can be reunited with her and that there's a chance of reconciliation and there's a chance to make it right and there's a chance to get Samantha back. And, like, that's what... Gethsemane seems to be saying about the mythology of the X-Files is that it's not the inclusion of things like aliens and God isn't an argument that those things are actually real. It's more an argument that you need to temper your skepticism and your paranoia and your fear and your kind of like uncertainty with just a little bit of hope, just a little bit of optimism, just a little bit of belief that, like, despite seeing all the terrible, terrible things that have happened in the world, you know? And again, like, this, The X-Files, we talked about this, The X-Files is a show that deals regularly with themes like the Holocaust. It deals with the legacy of the Holocaust. It deals with the consequences of the Holocaust. You know, the, the syphilis experiments that were conducted on the American public, for example. You know, it deals with things that actually happened that are horrific beyond magnitude and almost, like, beyond the human capacity to process. And so... For Mulder, his belief in aliens is very similar to the show's, you know, use of aliens and use of God, because it allows him to believe in something more. And again, this is something that, you know, the show pushes back and forth on with the aliens, where, you know, initially in the first couple of seasons, and particularly like Little Green Men, it seems like the aliens might possibly be, you know, nice or at least sort of divine, you know, in, in, you know, Fearful Symmetry, they're like building Noah's Ark, for example. And, you know, Mm. it gets a bit more complicated later on when they're like, actually... we like the planet. We're going to take the planet. That's what we're doing. Um, and it becomes like the aliens become this manifestation of like unimaginable inhuman evil. But like even thematically, uh, Mulder's belief in aliens is a way for him to believe in something more 
than the mundane, horrific reality of the world that he processes. And again, you see that a lot in, in again, not to skip too far ahead, but in like Redux 1 and Redux 2, where you have these like Oliver Stone-esque montages, which yeah. just document like the horrible, horrible, horrible subtext of the mythology, <laughs> like directly in your face in this really brutal fashion, where it's like, yep, yeah, mass murder of civilians, explosions, bombs, military industrial complex, something that exists far outside the control of anybody, including you, the viewer. You're completely powerless, <laughs> hopeless, and there's nothing you could do that will accomplish anything at all to make the world a better place because these forces are so strongly aligned and up to so much evil that it's impossible to possibly fathom what's going on let alone stop it um what Gethsemane does is it says well actually if that is true and let's accept that that's true and let's believe that that's true let's believe that all the horrible things in the world and that the show is argued are true hope becomes all the more important after that point faith becomes all the more important after that point because faith anchors us and faith gives us something to believe in and faith gives us something that keeps us going in a very literal sense that scene with Mulder at the end because what happens like in Gethsemane and again not literally not in terms of plot because the audience knows Mulder can't be dead but when Gethsemane takes away Mulder's faith and Mulder's hope Mm. he may as well be dead yeah Um, which is just powerful like again i think that's a very strong argument on the part of the episode for what the show is doing and how the show does it it's a very clever not deflection that's unfair a very clever response to some legitimate criticism of the show at the time which have arguably even become kind of more they become louder in the years since when people talk about contextualizing the show in terms of things like the kind of like the post-truth era the post-fact era you know that sort of stuff yeah absolutely and it's a really that final mo- moment you see Mulder where he's just basically got tears running down his eyes watching the old, you know, hearings about the possibility of alien life and he, with all his, with his faith and hope seemingly gone, you know, and then there's that... Um, Duchovny can cry, can't he? Like, I mean, yeah, Duchovny gets a lot of flack. Like, no, like, Duchovny does get a lot of flack for maybe... There are, What's that description? Nathan Rabin described Bruce Willis as one of the most transparent actors in America, in that you can tell when Bruce Willis believes in the script that he's performing. Uh, Dukovny is kind of similar in that respect, where you can tell there are weeks when Dukovny's like, really? Um, but there yeah, are weeks when he really yeah. kind of goes for it. And like, one of the things that Dukovny does phenomenally well as an actor, and I don't mean to trivialize, trivialize his work at all, he cries absolutely. Like, watching Mulder cry is heartbreaking. I yeah. want to reach the screen and cuddle him. Yeah, and that's exactly how I felt. You know, watching this again, I was just like, it's such a sad and, you know, desperate kind of kind of way to end him for a season compared to, like, you know, how in the last two seasons he's been there in, in, the, in the middle of a boxcar investigating things or with, a, with, with crap Excalibur about to face down an alien. And here he is, right? Here he is. He's no longer out there. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know, Bring tr- going after the quest. He feels like he's lost. He feels like he's lost everything. It's really sad. And then you have the fade to Scully's face, the match cut to Scully's yes, face. Yes, which is beautiful. Beautiful direction. She's really well done. And then she delivers the Mulder's dead, you know, which. It, and it doesn't even matter if you believe that or not at the time. 
the power of that final moment, I think, sticks. You know, knowing even knowing that you know he comes, he, he he will be in the next episode, doesn't make that any less sad. You know, and 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 impressive and brave a way to end a season of television. Yeah. You know, I mean, because <laughs> even know. if it's not literally true in terms of plot, and even, like the audience is smart enough to know that again, this is like Sherlock Holmes dying in the Ratchetback Fall. There's yeah, no way exactly. he's not back next year. Mm. It's true in terms of theme because, like, the concept of the character has, in theory, been like dealt this on you know impossible blow, like this blow from which he cannot recover. And the question mm. is, how does he do that? Now, again. Not to tip my hand with the fifth season, I think there are some things the fifth season doesn't necessarily do particularly well in kind of carrying this on. But, like, as mm. Gethsemane ends, like, Mulder has been destroyed as a, as a person, like, as a concept, as, like, a collection of beliefs. Yeah. And so yeah. Scully's observation that Mulder is dead... You know, the audience knows that's not true, literally, because it knows Dukovny, you know, will be back for the fifth season and fight the future. Mm. Uh, like, he's, he's Dukovny will be filming Fight the Future in the middle of the summer. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it's it's also, you know, but it is true in, like, a sense thematically at where this episode's at. Mulder's beliefs have been shattered. The character of Mulder, as we've known him up until this point, has been, like, cracked in a very fundamental way. Mm. Like, he's been challenged existentially, uh, like in a, in yeah. a very, like in a way that's not concrete in a way that is abstract. And again, this gets to the whole episode seeming more meditative than, you know, previous season finales, more sort of like removed and more sort of poetic and more lyrical and more, you know, sort of like, you know, again, if you want, if you want to be, you know, if you want to be kind of critical, you could say pretentious, uh, but like in a way that is more kind of about ideas, uh, and about sort of like, criticism and about the show as a concept rather than as a narrative if that makes sense so i think this is a good point to jump off and talk a bit about get get a bit of fan feedback and listener feedback about gethsemane because we've we've picked through a fair bit of it but we've got some good feedback here we've got some good chunks of comments from the ex uh, cast basement group on facebook um, so thanks to everyone who has submitted um, some thoughts. And then after this, we're going to do a little bit of a season four wrap up. And we're going to talk about how, um, our top three and our bottom three episodes of season four, which some of you have also contributed. So we're, we're going to pick through mail a little bit here. So um, Gethsemane then. Chandru Ravindran says that Gethsemane holds a special place in my heart because it was the first mythology episode I saw after becoming a fan. I remember being worried out of my mind because the previews following Demons stated that either Mulder or Scully would not make it out of this one alive, and 13-year-old me was so ready to believe the lie. (laughs) Um, Gethsemane is powerful but flawed. The cinematography is top-notch, particularly on Blu-ray, and the episode feels apocalyptic. It feels like Mulder is teetering on the edge of something monumental, which he is. Brackets, which he is. That's not me saying that, that's Chandru. But more importantly, this is the episode where I really feel Scully's cancer is handled best even more so than Memento Mori. I would agree with that, to be honest. Her anger and frustration is bubbling just below the surface, and Gillian Anderson plays it beautifully. The scenes at the dinner table with Father McHugh and with Bill Scully are phenomenal. I love that Scully clams up with Bill right when he disparages Mulder. It's like she decides right then, he doesn't understand our relationship and he never will understand, and I don't have the energy for this, so I'm not even going to (laughs) try. Brilliantly played. And I also love her garage confrontation with Critchgate. It feels like one of the first moments in the mythology 
where Scully gets an action scene instead of Mulder. I love the reaction shot of her in the car. Like, again, it's it's a wide shot. Yeah. It's in a distance. But it's like there's a real shot of Gillian Anderson behind the wheel being like, I have just had enough. It's a fantastic shot. Yeah. I love it. It's a bit where it's like... <laughs> it's really good. Where, like, you honestly, like, Kritzka is wondering if she's going to mow him down. And, like, as an audience member, you're like, is she going to mow him down? Is she, she going to do like it? She's, yeah. <laughs> she's, yeah, she's done. So like, I'll never make it a trial anyway. My cancer's coming back. It's like... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Chandru finishes by saying, but with all that said, it's hard for me to get past the fact that Mulder's death is a complete lie. I get it as a way to unnerve the audience, but it bothers me because it appears that Gillian Anderson plays that scene like Scully really believes Mulder to be dead. Scully is not a good liar, so this just doesn't jive with the revealing Redux that Scully's in on it. Now, I think one thing we have to factor in here is that it's very likely that Gillian Anderson didn't know at this stage that it was all a big hoax. I would imagine that you know that that may that it may have even been that Gethsemane was written without that fully having been figured out as well. So I think we have to apply some level of you know Gillian's playing what's on the page, and what's yes. on the page is not suggesting that this is all one because let's be honest and we'll talk about this in redux it's a big fucking cheat <laughs> like yeah the, the teaser to, to redux is one of the most inelegant fixes in yeah. like the x-files long yeah. history of inelegant fixes oh um, massively. it's not quite my struggle three but it's kind of like you, you you want to draw a connection between the redux trilogy and my yeah. struggle there's perhaps one you could make there i think so absolutely so i think it's a good point and i think that if if you can sort of see that i think you can you can appreciate what they're trying to do a bit more here but um i also think it's interesting when he mentioned demons because it's interesting that this follows demons you know which which is a very underrated episode demons and it gets into the psychology of Mulder's family history a lot more but that is an episode where you could suggest that Mulder's really been pushed to the edge psychologically as well and it's interesting that that comes this could, it could just be a quirk of production, really. But it's interesting that it comes just before Gethsemane. I don't know. What do you do? You think that was intentional, Darren? That they were trying to sort of layer in this idea that Mulder might be a little bit not mentally very stable in some respects. I don't know. I'm I'm not entirely kind of. I don't think it was like literal in terms of plot. And again, this is the mm. thing where like you look at the production of the fourth season as a whole, and there's a sense of it being written very much by the the seat of the pants. Um, yeah. And also, I, I don't think that there was a point where they sat down at the start of the season and were like, okay, big themes on markers in the board. Yeah. But it, I do think that it plays into, again, this recurring theme of like, skept- and we'll talk about this in a moment when we get to the fourth season trying to make sense of it. But this kind of thing where you can tell that a bunch of writers working in a room together for, you know, 20 odd weeks of a year will have inevitably kind of certain ideas and certain themes that interest them and certain things that they're talking about. And those things will inform their work in a variety of ways. So, I mean, I think that Mulder's, you know, the whole like is it all real sort of aspect of demons which kind of carries through to Gethsemane but you can also even like trace back to for example you know musings of a cigarette smoking man earlier in the season you know that mm. these things were all things that the writers were kind of thinking about while they were writing the show and while they're working at this point together in in the room so I I don't know if I'd say it's a direct kind of you know one-to-one link but I, mm. I would say that I think it kind of speaks to a lot of you know what was ha- you know what the writers were thinking about the X Files at that moment in time um, as a group? Yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that's that's pretty spot on there. Caradon Foley says, oh, "I think Gethsemane is a wonderfully structured episode and one of the best season finales of the show's run. A huge achievement given the competition. For me, it only loses out to Erlenmeyer Flask and Anasazi. 
Uh, Zero Sum, Elegy and Demons have at this point done a gorgeous job positioning the players and naming the stakes, which means Gethsemane doesn't have to spend its first act stage setting. It just presses go and we have the whole episode to watch everything unfold. I'm a lot more sanguine on Redux 1 than a lot of fans are and I'm very fond of Redux 2. That six episode sequence from Zero Sum to Redux 2 is for me the strongest run of episodes in the series. I think that's a really interesting way of looking at, at this in that it just presses go. Because I think that that, that that is a complaint with some mythology episodes, isn't it? Particularly the two-parters or even the three-parters where... And I know this is part one of a three-parter, but it doesn't feel like it is in the same way. I think it, it, sometimes the, there is an element of setup, and then, you know, you're, you're, you're getting into the... You know, what ultimately the episode is trying to... The, the piece of the puzzle that it's trying to accomplish. Whereas this, you know, Zero Sum has done a lot of that legwork. It's sort of you know put put a put a full stop on smoking man marita you know the elders you know skinner all these guys and allows this to breathe and i think so it's really interesting the way she looks at that there yeah and i think it helps that the episode itself in terms of plot doesn't really have that much going on it's you know there's an mm-hmm. alien body that's been discovered in the yukon like Mulder's yep. gonna go take a look at it that's basically the plot of the episode as much as it exists there's no plan to take over the world there's no mysterious viral right. outbreak there's no attempt to control a secret weapon which is really a crap Excalibur that will help when colonization <laughs> takes place like in terms of plot it's it's a relatively slight episode which means that it can from the very outset get to what it thinks is the meat of the story you know you don't mm. have to you don't have to do the setup that like Talitha Kumi has to do to get to the arguments between Mulder and Mr. X or to get to the point where Mulder's looking at photos of his mother and the cigarette smoking man you know that sort of stuff yeah. where the heart of that episode lies here you have like okay well we know the plot is that an alien body has been found in the Yukon we can just get straight to what we think this episode is about which is you know Scully and her faith and Mulder and his faith and we're there from the word go, pretty much. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Morgane Schmidt says, "I think Gethsemane is a very good episode. I feel like Mulder. Uh, I feel like Mulder. I have hope this alien is real, and I want to believe." The scene when Scully reveals that the Shadow Men gave her cancer to make Mulder believe is totally heartbreaking, and and paranoia is at climax. And Mulder, who, who considers attempting to take his life because he's devastated by the news, I think that's a really good point about the. Uh, the, the moment where she says that about the cancer that is a that is a if if there ever's a moment i suppose that that i feel does push Mulder into that sadness it's it's that it's being confronted with the reality that i'm only going to die because they wanted you to to go to down believe. this rabbit hole to believe yeah and that and that is well, that that's, is, that's the moment where he moment. walks away. Like, that's the moment yeah. where it's like he's done. Because he's heard Kritzkow. He's seen the evidence. He's had the conversation. He's had it laid out for him rationally. You know, the sort of like the plot A to B to C. He's had all his observations, like, rebutted. He's 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 had the emotional, sorry, the rational argument over the point. And he's decided he's going to stick to his guns. And then Scully comes and she says, you know, he's like, what did he say that convinced you? And Scully's like, you know, they gave me cancer to make you believe. And that's that's what hammers him. That's that's the belief that sort of gets him there. And that's kind of something that I think goes a long way towards kind of, you know, reinforcing the fact that, you know, while Bill Scully may technically be correct, Mulder is actually a decent human being underneath it all. Because he does, like, as much as Mulder can be selfish and self-centered and sort of, like, absorbed in his quest, it's mostly, it's it's innocent blindness. Like, when this stuff is brought to his attention, he does feel bad about it. He does feel guilty about it. And he does acknowledge that, you know, people have paid a horrible price for his quest, you know, for what he believes. 
And interestingly enough, actually, I would argue, I kind of mentioned this earlier, but just to kind of bring it home and reinforce it. I do think that there is perhaps an element, again, of this show being somewhat self-critical or engaging in self-criticism there. Because I think that, like, and again, you know, this is one of my criticisms of the Scully abduction arc in the second season, is that, yes, it was written around Julian Anderson's pregnancy, and yes, it was a last-minute fix, and yes, it was very desperate, and it was like a bunch of writers scrambling to come up with an idea to make it work in the limited time that they had. But one of the issues with it as it unfolded in the second season was that it made something that happened to Scully all about Mulder from the outset. Like, I mean, at the end of Sleepless, you know, the cigarette-smoking man makes it clear that Scully's going to be kidnapped in order to make Mulder feel angsty and depressed. And one of the interesting things about, like, One Breath is the way in which it deconstructs that by, like, criticising this idea of Mulder getting revenge on the men who hurt Scully rather than simply being there and supporting Scully. So I think that, you know, Scully confronting Mulder... And again, this is the thing where this is an episode that was written by Carter exclusively without Smotness, without anybody else uh, working on it with him. But like having Scully confront Mulder and say to him, I was only given cancer to further your character arc, to further the story that had been constructed around you, to like to be a pawn or to serve as like emotional leverage for your quest, because that's the narrative that's important here. Feels like, again, the show engaging with some criticism of its own history and its own past and again maybe i'm reading too much into this which should be my middle name at this point but again you're looking at things like carter if if carter is using gethsemane to engage with things like the show's handling of the paranormal or it's it's kind of like sugarcoating of like rationality or it's embrace of fantasy elements then it feels like scully making that point to Mulder is the show acknowledging that it hasn't always been particularly fair to scully in the same way that having bill make that point earlier on is the show acknowledging that it hasn't always been particularly fair to Scully in its handling of, like, or its prioritizing of Mulder's quest. There's a real sense of, like, mea culpa there, which I think is very mature, very reflective, and very sort of dignified, and I think buys the show a lot of credit, because I I would be critical of the show in certain points for that. I think there are points where it uses Scully phenomenally. I think there are points where Carter writes Scully amazingly. I think, again, like Nicey and 731 are two of the best Scully episodes in the entire run of the show because they find a way to use what was done to her or how she was used in earlier seasons to further her arc and her kind of dramatic beat and her own agency and motivation. But I think that it's it's interesting and it's brave. It's very brave for a show that is at the peak of its popularity to have Scully basically turn to Mulder and say, the people who wrote this used me to further your emotional arc. Isn't that something that's terrible? And Mulder going, yeah. That's actually really terrible. I think that's a very brave... Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Dave decision for the show to make. Yeah, it is. It really is. I think it sort of sums up, yeah, a lot A lot of the, the, the powerful choices made in this episode. Yeah. 
So thanks guys for your feedback. Sorry if we haven't got to all of it, but I want to press on and do and talk about season four in general and wrap the season up before we move um, on into season five uh, and get some of your top and bottom three. So before we before we do our top and bottom three, Darren, what 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 would you give what would you give season four as a whole then out of ten? As, a, as an episode, as a season ranking, and what did you make of it generally? Okay, before I give the ranking, this is one of those things where I I have that kind of thing, like, how do you rank a season? It's like, do you rank a season based on, like, the average of the episodes contained within it? Is, is that the math mm. that you do? Or is there, like, some sort of ineffable quality where, you like, you rank a season on how well it holds together? So, like, for example... And again, this is this is the thing. You asked me, I think, to pick like my top three episodes of the season. And I was like, curse you, Tony, because four <laughs> of my top ten episodes of the X-Files ever are in this season. <laughs> and one of them is going to have to get shaved when I do the countdown yeah. in a moment. Uh, Sorry. It gets at this thing where, like, if you were doing it that way, like in terms of episodes in my top ten, season four has more episodes than any other season, right? But, mm. here's the but. It doesn't hang together. The fourth season doesn't cohere for me as smoothly or as elegantly as, like, well, first of all, the two seasons either side of it. Like, it doesn't have this recurring, like, meditation on the legacy of the Second World War, uh, which kind of fuels the third season. And it doesn't have this sort of, like, preoccupation with disfigured reproduction and the question of where we go now that drives so much of the fifth season. Like, the fourth season, because of the way it was written, where you have this whole bunch of competing writers and competing voices, and Carter kind of splitting his attention in three different directions at once, doesn't have, like, a holistic beginning-to-end statement. It doesn't have, like, a cohesive argument about what the show is saying this year. And I think it says some interesting things. I think it, like, I think it's... First of all, it's very deconstructive. It it picks at the idea of the X-Files repeatedly. Uh, shows like, for example, you know, Musings of a Cigarette Smoking Man, to pick an example. But even, like, Gethsemane. Um, shows that kind of, like, really criticize and get at the question of what the X-Files can be. Even things like the four Morgan and Wong episodes that they wrote in this season, I would argue, are among the four best episodes the show ever did. Because they all pushed the show in directions that it hadn't gone before, and which were hugely adventurous. Even if they don't necessarily fit in a pattern with the rest of the show. And I mean, this is most obvious, I would argue, uh, with the gap that goes like, you know, Leonard Betts, uh, Never Again, and Memento Mori. Where you have Never Again, which was written for an entirely different purpose than it ends up fulfilling in the season as a whole, despite fitting relatively thematically well in that context. So that's my issue with the fourth season, is that while it contains these wonderfully brilliant episodes that are among the best shows ever done, which push the show forward, and which I would argue count among some of the best television episodes of the 90s, if not of all time, as a whole season, it doesn't gel for me in the way that the best season of the show does, even if, you know, I can see recurring themes like the show questioning itself or, you know, sort of like the way in which it handles Scully's cancer arc, you know, it's it's kind of impressive for a show that was kind of hitting the ground running and improvising as it was going. So for me, controversially, this season will get an 8 out of 10. I, I still think that's pretty fair for, for a, a season that is, as you say, a little bit uneven in terms of some of the broader themes and arcs. Well, I mean, it's the fourth I, I, best it, season in the X-Files, I would argue, behind 3, 5, and 8. Uh, and the, the irony yeah, is that I think yeah. that eight, 8 doesn't have an episode that is as strong as, say, the top six episodes in this season, to pick an example. But it, it gels together so well that the season itself is elevated for me. Mm. I, I think I would possibly... Back in the day, I think I would have put the... I'd, I'd have probably gone for similar. But I think I, think I preferred season 2 to this, just by a whisker. 
because weirdly, I don't tend to revisit a lot of season four. Oddly enough, yet season four does have some phenomenal individual episodes. I think I think I would go. I think I'm going to plump for a seven out of ten okay. myself. And I thought my um, my eight was going to be controversial. <laughs> It's a great well, season. It's a really good season. It, it, it just it, it, doesn't have that it spark is. for me. No, it, I, I agree. It, it, it's neither neither does it for me. I think three does. I think five does. And like you say, eight does. I for me, two does as well. Even though two has got some real shunky wobblers. You heard it here but... first, listeners. Tony Black loves fearful symmetry. <laughs> Masterpiece. Five stars. Eight. Five stars. I tell you what, the Calisari is no... an underrated masterpiece. No. <laughs> No other episode of, of the Excelsis Day. Me... <laughs> I've got nothing. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's that's that beyond. was too far. Yeah, I, I can't follow you there, Darren. I can't. Um, but yeah, Fearful Symmetry is the only episode of the X Cast where I've recited poetry. So you know, it's worth something. Oh, you've done your um, Blake. You've you proto Blake. There we go. Exactly. That was that, down to Zach Moore. He got me into into that. I, um, we should but, have an X Cast uh, poetry corner just at the end. <laughs> Or just haikus, yeah. <laughs> Xcast haiku corner, um, but yeah, I, I, th- I think, I think it's, it's got a lot of impressive bits to it. What? Let, let's go for our threes then. Before we talk about, well, what we'll do is we'll intersperse a few people's different the rankings. So, um, why don't you give me your um, third best episode of season four, Darren? Third best episode. I'm going to go with home. Good choice. Yeah. Good choice. That's uh, the legendary classic band, almost band, <laughs> X-File. Good choice. I think I am going for my number three with, and this one will surprise people in a way. I'm going for Synchrony. Ooh, Be- interesting. Because I really like Synchrony. And, and it, it's the only, if I'm honest, it's the only episode of season four that I'm gutted I didn't get, I didn't get chance to do. You know, Zach Moore and Matt Latham did a really good job with that podcast, but I was almost going to be on that with them, and I couldn't for various different reasons, and I'm gutted. And I'm going to be, we're going to do a, a patrons-only commentary track for that next year, and I'm looking forward to doing that, because I think Synchrony's got a lot going for it. It's the only episode that properly has a go at time travel in the X-Files, and I love time travel. Hey, Red Rum. All right, yeah, okay, Red Rum. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Memento, you mean. Yeah. <laughs> But, potato, potato. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But uh, sorry, I was Joe yeah, Mortified so... that you forgot that. <laughs> Very good. Sorry. I love red rum. By the way, I can't wait till the day we get to that. I'll but, be mounting yeah, a dogged uh, defence of it. Yeah. <laughs> oh, very good. We've reached the point very of the good. podcast where Darren's just going to bun incessantly. Hey, we should have done that within five minutes you know we're, we've left it but way it too of, long i feel like an episode that opens with a suicide doesn't really lend itself to kind of wordplay you know no nah. <laughs> i didn't want to be in with a bullet you know so my yeah that that's that's my number three let's let's just do a couple of other number three so um andrew levitt um his top three are I'll go through. Well, what I'll do is uh, we'll we'll do our steadily, but I'll go through different people's top three. So he's top three. Number three, he went for small potatoes. Uh, number two, Memento Mori, and number one, Paper Hearts. I suspect Paper Hearts is going to do pretty well with a lot of different rankings. Yes, Paper um, Hearts is my fourth actually, which is that's yeah, the one I had ah, to cut. Damn you! Ah, I had to cut damn, it out like yeah. one of those Paper Hearts. What would you go for as your number three bottom episode then, Darren? 
Okay, this is one of those ones where it's like, Tony, I'm going to need you to make a call on this. Um, it's the two-parter, Tunguska and Terma, but if you put a bullet, to, a gun to my head, it's going to be, like Mulder does, it's going to be Terma. Yeah. Um, yeah. Terma yeah. is, is one of the... It's the first mythology episode that I remember really profoundly disliking. And it, mm. every time I rewatch it, it just drags. And I can see conceptually what it's doing. It's like, okay, we're going back to the first season. So we're going to do like Cold War stuff, you know, to complement like bringing back Blevo. Um, but it just mm. it doesn't, it doesn't work. <laughs> and it's like, I sh- there are parts of this that I should like, like spending time with the well-manicured man. But even things like the framing device with the Senate hearing, they just don't work. I mean, no. Mulder on horseback in Russia should be a five-star event. Like, Mulder Gulag <laughs> Riot on horseback. It's like, how do you mess that up? And you look at Tunguska and Terma, and the answer is that way. Tunguska, Tunguska's okay. I don't mind that one. But Terma's pretty pretty <laughs> dodgy. Yeah, it's pretty rubbish. It's the Emily of, of season four. I oh, think yeah. You can well, yeah. Easily say. <laughs> um, Emily, which is the but, worst script that Vince Gilligan has ever oh, written. Yeah. Come at me, Twitter. It's telling that they're fairly well connected as well, <laughs> Terma and Emily. There is definite DNA connecting those two episodes, but it's yeah. And also the point of the season um, where we're like, "Dear God, let the Christmas hiatus survive." <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Cortland uh, Waters Bartley went for her bottom three. Uh, number three was Musings of Cigarette Smoking Man, and she put probably an unpopular choice. I know. Um, well, it does divide people. Courtland, oh, I know, I, I say, know. So fair enough. Two El Mundo Gira and one Teleco. Uh, again, I think fairly standard choices, really. Yes. Um, um, my... Two of those three may also be on my bottom three. I'll give yeah. you a hint. The other one is in my top two. Ah, okay. Interesting. Darren Mooney, secret Teleco fan. Just wait. You heard it here first. <laughs> it's uh, it's all coming out today. <laughs> my my number three, bad X-File. My least, uh, so he, I'm going for Unrequited. Because I think that's a bit rubbish. That missed my cut as well, yeah. Yeah, I don't think it's very good. There's not much in there that really stands out. So that's my number three. And the Immediate Um, Res thing is horribly lazy. And the fact that it's like written to jump around the cancer arc with the little kind of Chiron at the start. It's very, very cynical. It's very lazy. And and I hate using the word lazy because it's like they wrote, they only wrote like 24 episodes a season. Jesus, those hacks. But it, 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 is, it feels like there were a number of mistakes that were made there that could be mm. very easily have been remedied if somebody was, like, paying, you know, just trying. It, it, it's yeah. the rare episode of The X-Files where it feels like the show is on autopilot, which is a real shame. Katie Doe's top three. Let's, uh, let's do a top three. She went for Gethsemane at number three, Memento Mori at number two, and number one, Paper Hearts again. It's nice to see nice. Gethsemane in a top three there. Which is really good. What would your number two that be then, Darren? Uh, I'd love it. Your number two top episode. I'd love it if this was Get Seventy now. <laughs> uh, no, it, it's music of a cigarette smoking man. Um, oh yes, yeah. yes. Which is Which again absolutely brilliant. Absolutely love it. I know it's yeah. divisive. I accept it's divisive, and I accept a lot of the criticisms of it. But it's just it's one of my. And again, this sort of probably tips my hand into like what my favorite episode is going to be. But this is one of my favorite episodes of television ever made i think i've yeah. watched this like i watched this to record the podcast and then i watched it again when the podcast came out and it was just like i need an excuse i, I don't really need an excuse to watch this it's beautiful it's mm. the for me it's a large part of the show in like a nutshell in a very sort of like abstract way in a way that encapsulates a lot of what i love about the x-files in a way that's clever playful and is is kind of again something that no other show could really do 
which mm. is is kind of what I love about the X Files. It, it's it's out there. It's wild, but it's also quintessentially X Files. It's just for me, it's it's almost perfect television. Yeah, I mean, I, it, it's it's my number four, I think, and I, I I can't disagree with that. I mean, it's 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 terrific. It absolutely terrific. Um, and you you and Carl did a fantastic episode on that back in um, early this season. My number two, I'm gonna I'm gonna steal your number three. I'm going for home because I think home's great. Really, I, I, I you know, it's so much in that that that's just iconic. So that's my that's my number two. Let's see who else have we got. Keely Portno, her top three are number three demons, which is nice to see up nice there. To see that, uh, yeah. yeah, Paper Hearts at number two, and Unrue at number one, which is really good because again, you 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 and um, you and Carl did a great podcast on Unrue as well, and that and that is a, an episode that's that deserves more love, I think, generally. It is. It's totally underrated, and that's the that's the kind of problem with the kind of top three format is that like when I'm squeezing out Paper Hearts, I can't really justify sticking in on Rue, which is phenomenal. Yeah. I absolutely love on Rue. It's great fun, and again, it, it's something where it's like you look at Vince Gilligan, and he seems like such a nice guy, but there's a point where you're watching it, and you're like, is this Vince Gilligan giving the middle finger to Millennium? I think it might possibly be that. Um, it's like, watch me do what you're doing, but better. Also, Paper Hearts, um, which I yeah. kind of adore. There's something kind of very playful and slick in that, but it's also just really well constructed and it works thematically yeah. with the season as a whole. And it's got a really great guest performance from Pruitt Taylor Vince as well. Yeah, for sure. 100%, definitely. What would your number two worst episode of the season be then? What would you go for? Well, as the world turns, it's El Mundo Gira. <laughs> yeah the mexican goat yeah. sucker thing yeah it uh, doesn't just it's have rubbish yeah <laughs> that's that's really about it it sucks it's rubbish it certainly sucks um it does. but yeah no it is it is awful like and again this is the thing where you can interesting you know despite the fact i described terma as the episode where the show is like just get the christmas break here already or unrequited <laughs> where it's like okay the easy the path of least resistance to get a script on screen the thing with el mundo gira is that there's some stuff in there that if if the show had a kind of a tighter more fluid sort of like stable production in the fourth season el mundo gira would be a lot better because it would have like passed through a stronger set of like script editing hands and yep. people would have like beaten it into shape and they would have said look john shaban you've got some really great ideas here the ideas that you want to emphasize are a b and c instead of just like throwing in the whole alphabet and like you're like well this this thing is kind of interesting but it doesn't make any sense um, and also, it's kind of racist, mm. but we're going to touch on that when we get to my worst episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. My number two worst is probably Taliko because I just think, again, that's just a really badly thought out and executed Monster of the Week episode. What if Tombs, just... but racist? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's, again, it's just rubbish again. So, before we get to our number ones, uh, let's see. Michael Little, his top three were uh, Demons at number three, uh, Home at number two, and Paper Hearts at number one. Demons is doing well, yeah. Demons is getting into a few... I think Demons is having a real renaissance in the way people are looking at it but we, we, when it comes to season four with the X-Cast and, and that our listeners. Yeah, it's really nice to see that. 
It is. It's almost like it's really good to see what you would assume to be accepted wisdom kind of turned on his head, which is kind of mm. really good. And it's like that's the thing about going back and revisiting this, and also like having something like the X cast. And again, not to, not to blow too much smoke up, whatever. But like again, the, the X cast is an excuse to rewatch these episodes and go back and mm. revisit them and think about them and break them down. You know, twenty plus years removed from context. Uh, it's kind of great that you can have these little renaissances and kind of forgotten gems and episodes that were yeah. and again not hated at the time but kind of overlooked are now like well actually this is really 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 good yeah yeah no it is it does allow for that definitely so let's let's do our let's do our bottom let's do our bottom top episodes if you see what i mean so let's do and <laughs> before we talk about our best our favorites what would you say your the worst episode of season four is darren uh, it's Tilico, uh, which is ah, just good. horrible, <laughs> horrible, horrible, horrible. Um, the thing, yes, the thing about it really does. And again, this is the thing where, like, if you were being clever and if you're being smart and you want to be very generous, you'd be like, well, actually, this is part of the fourth season's continued re-engagement with the first season. Where you've got Blevo <laughs> coming back, you've got another take on two. I don't know why I'm British. I think when I say Blevo, it yeah, just immediately Blevo. sounds Blevo. Blevo, I say. Corporal um, Blevo. Yes. Um, the life and death of, Cor- of Colonel Blevo. Yeah, of um, Colonel Blevo. I thought that, yeah. But, um, like, if you were, if you wanted to be really generous, what you'd say is it's the show going back to its roots and sort of, like, you know you know the way that you're bringing back Blevins, for example, and you're, like, playing mm. back the pilot in, like, you know, Musing of Cigarette Smoking Man, and, you know, yeah. in Gethsemane, you have Scully finally doing the task that she was assigned to do in the pilot, and you bring back Max Fennig. Well, you'd argue if you're very, very generous to the show, you'd say, like, well... You know, Talico is about bringing back one of the most iconic monsters in the show's history and providing a sense of context and history and how we moved on from there. The only problem is that if you're doing that, the big difference between Tombs and Talico is the sound of, like, windpipes and, like, copious, (laughs) copious amounts of racism. Um, It's not a good episode. Not a good episode at all. Awful. Awful stuff. My number one... Is we've just, we've just swapped basically. My number one's El Mundo Gira, which, which again, is a good bad just, choice. Yeah, we've talked about it. it's rubbish. It, it's it's just a really ham fisted. I wouldn't say any of this stuff is is quite is quite Teso dos Bicos or Excelsis Day bad. I wouldn't. I, I don't. I don't think it's quite that bad or objectionable. Uh... But. <laughs> I, well, nearly. I, okay. I'd say nearly is. I don't. I personally don't think it's quite as bad, but it's not far off. No, and it, it and like you can see the the gems of good ideas. Just to articulate kind of what I got out there, yeah. you have things like the Mexicans doing a Mexican soap opera episode. The X Files is a nice thing. You could have a bit of fun with that. You could do something like Triangle with that, where it's shot in the style of it, and you're playing with the format of it, and you're pushing it, but. That's not what it's doing at all. You have the weird thing at the end with the kind of the storytelling device of, well, did this really happen? And suddenly Skinner's like intervening in the narrative to tell us whether it did or didn't happen at all and whether it happened the way that it thought it did, which is very, you know, like Jose Chung, but written by an idiot. Um, it's yeah, it's not not good. It's not good. No, no, rubbish. Before we do, before we do our um, top episodes, finally... Kathy Owen-Glinsky, Kathy G, her top three for season four are number three, Demons, number two, Amento Mori, and Paper Hearts at the top. And she said, I think Home is a better episode than Demons, but Demons evokes more emotion and I'm drawn to that. And fair play, you know, yeah. and I think Memento Mori obviously does well. It did very well in our polls um, on the basement when we rank the entire season, and that's been a lot of fun we've been doing for the last few months. So Memento Mori obviously has a lot of fan love behind it. 
I don't think it's quite good enough to be in the conversation at the very top, but I understand why people really enjoy yeah. it. I mean, it, it wouldn't be in... Sorry, not, not to spoil my top episode, but I think a lot of people know what my top episode is going to be. But it's... Yeah, I, I like... I understand why people like Memento Mori. I think it worked, turned out very well given the circumstances in which it was written. Mm. And I think it's massively important in terms of like winning Gillian Anderson or Emmy and winning the show. The right, mm. Did it win the writing Emmy? Or was it, I think it was just nominated for the Ooh. writing Emmy, but it's still I can't an accomplishment. Quite remember. Yeah, but it's yeah, still it a, a tremendous good. accomplishment as well for the show. So yeah. I understand that entirely. Um, it just, for mm. me, it doesn't quite work. It, it doesn't mm. click in the way that it needs to click, you know? As much as I love Same. funky poaching. Yeah, <laughs> who doesn't love a bit of funky poaching? But yeah, obviously now we've got our top episodes and Darren's already suggested and we think we know what his number one's going to be and if it's not Sanguinarium, Darren, I'm going to be very disappointed. Oh, that's a shame. It turns out it's Heronvoke. It is not Heronvoke. <laughs> um, it is actually It's Never Again, uh, which is... What, yes. And again, this is the thing where it's like I talked about how... Think about Music of Cigarette Smoking Man is like an episode that is very like what the X-Files could do. It's something quintessentially X-Files and yet something that is utterly unlike anything else on television. Never Again, for me, was something that was just utterly unlike anything I expected from the X-Files. And it's something that kind of like, again, I understand it's a polarizing episode. I understand that lots of people don't like it. And I, I, I get that and I respect that. But for me personally, as again, somebody who watches a teenager, but somebody who's watched it regularly since and has grown up with it, it's it captures for me a sense of kind of just living of kind of like moving through the world of kind of like getting having these anxiety attacks and questioning your place and kind of the like jose chung's from outer space or like clyde brookman's final repose from the third season finding a way to distill the core themes of the x-files this kind of like existential uncertainty what the hell am i doing with my life which i i hope is something that everybody feels but i know it's something that i feel um, and kind of distilling it down into a story that is is deeply, deeply moving, while also still having a talking ha- tattoo voiced by Jodie Foster, um, and you know a wonderful soundtrack and direction that is completely off the wall as well. Mm. So it's everything that I want really. And on a, on a you know this is one of the things where if you ask me on a any given day what my favorite episode of the X Files is, it will either be One Breath or it will be um, you know that episode Never Again. Yeah. Never again, which is which is great actually, and it's interesting how it's not come up in anyone else who I was talking about. There, nobody has even brought it up, but not just not just in the top episodes, and not in the bottom episodes either. Like it's no, for most people, I think it's sitting re, re, you know squarely in the middle. Darren, so no it's... taste, Mooney. <laughs> oh yeah, or maybe, or more likely, you you see stuff something in this episode that we just a lot some of us just don't and i so it'd be really interesting to see if there are other people out there put your head above the parapet guys if you agree <laughs> if you feel the similar way about never again let us know because i think it is it's my favorite of those that's that in middle trilogy to be fair i think it's the most interesting episode of the three so it's it's good it's good that you're championing that one fair play fair i know play. my Mine is far more conventional. I've gone for Paper Hearts like everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> Which is still a because, great choice. Um, yeah, it, it, it's a brilliant episode. It you is. Know, and it's... I think it's... Um, Again, my fourth you know, choice. So I'm very glad to see it as your first. It kind of balances yeah. out there, which is good. Um, sorry, yeah. Vince Gilligan. I'm a Morgan and Wong fanboy for life, apparently. Well, you see, I, I'm I'm bound to Vince now after Pusher. You know, I, I'm just like, what can I say? <laughs> it's... Uh, 
Kitsunigari's obviously going to be my favourite episode of season five, you know. So, By a clear distance. That out there now. Yeah. Yeah. And we've already recorded Kitsunigari, so like, you know, we're like... Committed like now. Yeah, we really are. Um, I'm surprised so... you didn't say it would be one third of Emily. <laughs> Precisely God, one third, which, but no more of third? Emily. Yeah. That's, that's the bit to figure out. Is it the Anna Fugazi <laughs> stuff? God. But that's it, and that's it for season four. We're all we're all done. It's been a lot of fun talking about uh, Gethsemane and season four in general because it's. I always like we always like wrapping up the season, um, and um, I'm gonna, I'm just going to reveal it now, Darren. You're coming back for Redux and Redux two. Let's 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 put it out there so people can look forward to that. Well, I mean that way, then you don't get the massive cliffhanger if you've already filmed like Fight the Future in the summer gap between the two. <laughs> like, I mean, it turns out the X cast is actually wrapping up, and this is all just an elaborate shell game in order to convince you to like buy the cliffhanger that we ended on. No, I, I, I'm like Fox Mulder. I will be back next year. But thank you very much, and it's, it is an absolute pleasure, and it is always a delight to be asked back. Uh, it really is, Tony. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, they love your. They love your. Um your presence on the show 100%. So it's it's great to have you having these fantastic discussions and it'll be really good to dive into Redux which we haven't recorded yet. We are actually going in sequence for once um with this. So we we will we, we will come back and do Redux soon. Uh, listeners, just so you know, Tony was all Tony wasn't kidding when he said Kitsunagari was his favorite episode of the fifth season. He was like, "No, we have to do it now. Every minute that we're not recording it is a minute I'm not watching it." <laughs> Like, Tony, are you sure you don't want to like do them in order and like so that we're ready to release them no. and like schedule? It's like, no, get to Nagari now. No. Get to Nagari now. <laughs> but yeah, season five isn't going to be too far away. We we did have a longer break between seasons three and four than I at first anticipated. Um, so we're going to have a little bit of downtime and we will still try and provide, uh, particularly for patrons, some bonus content to keep you po- keep you. Um, you know, you may have watered for a few weeks, but I'd say we're probably talking about six six weeks or so before um, Redux turns up. So we're going to have a little bit of downtime um, to sort of take a slight breather. But, you know, as it stands, we've recorded nearly half of season five already. Uh, so we're in healthy shape as we go into um, season five and into next year. And we've got some we've got some very exciting news about Fight the Future coming soon as well, which uh, we will reveal in due course yeah we've got a really really interesting and exciting way what we're we're doing with um, Fight the Future which I think people are going to be really thrilled about so um, watch this space watch this space so Darren thanks thanks again for being on can you um, point people towards what you're up to uh, right now what's happening yeah so Grant um, you can follow me online on Twitter at Darren underscore Mooney I actually co-host another podcast called The 250 uh, where myself and my friend Andrew Quinn we go through the top 250 movies ever made uh, as ranked by IMDb voters uh, we're currently in the middle of the summer of 1999 despite the fact that it is in fact the autumn of 2019 uh, but what we're going through <laughs> is we're going through the idea was 1999 was a really big year in terms of cinema it was mm. one of the best the, was a best movie year ever I think Brian Rafferty described it um, when yeah. he wrote a book about it recently which is a great book and well worth reading so myself and andrew decided that we would do is we go through the 1999 movies that are on the top 100 top 250 and the bottom 100 like one at a time so if this is going out now we've already done episodes covering episodes covering stuff like say the matrix for example um Mm. the sixth sense um and next week, we'll have the wonderful Charlene Lydon, who runs the Lighthouse Cinema over here, uh, one of Ireland's best art house cinemas. She'll be coming in to talk to us about American Beauty, 
uh, which is going to be a very Ooh. interesting watch, 20 years removed from its original context. And then the week after, we actually have Alex Towers from the Irish film podcast When Irish Eyes Are Watching, which is great. I wholeheartedly recommend that one. Uh, but himself and Charlene Lydon, uh, again, are coming in to talk about Fight Club, actually. Which will be oh. a fascinating watch. Again, another movie from 1999, which will be interesting to discuss 20 years removed from its original context. Outside of that, Absolutely. Um, I operate my own blog, The Movie Blog, but I've actually just started a column at Escapist Magazine uh, online, uh, which is publishing, it should be publishing once or twice weekly as well, which is kind of, so if you want a good dose of Darren talking about pop culture, mm. uh, you can find online there. Um, just, they've been very, very supportive and it's it's really good and I'm, I'm really glad to be a part of that as well. That's a great column. It's called In the Frame, isn't it? It I is think. indeed, yeah. Is that, is that, yeah. Yeah, it's really good, really fantastic stuff. So yeah, lots of stuff to check out there, guys. Make sure you do. Um, and uh, you know where you can find me. I'm AJ Black Writer on Twitter, so uh, keep an eye, keep an eye out for whatever uh, I'm up to around X Files conversation. And we'll be back for season five. Not too long to wait before we return. So uh, yeah, thanks as always, guys, for listening. And remember, until next time, believe the lie. The X-Cast and X-Files podcast is produced and hosted by Tony Black, alongside a dedicated team of podcasters and X-Files fans. You can find the show on Twitter at the X underscore cast, on Facebook by typing in the X-Cast, or inside our group, the X-Files Basement, an X-Cast podcast fan group, plus on Instagram by typing in the XFCast. If you're a fan of the show, why not support us on Patreon? Exclusive bonus episodes, early access to new episodes... Plus, become part of our XCast community in the Patreon department. To see our monthly subscription options, just head to patreon.com forward slash the XCast. That's P A T R E O N dot com forward slash the XCast. We'd love to see you join our Patreon community. We're also part of the We Made This Podcast Network at We Made This Pod on Twitter and We Made This on Facebook. You can find a range of shows on TV, film, music and popular culture in general on the network. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.